Hello, and welcome to episode 73 of Random Encounter, the RPG fan podcast. I'm your host, Robert Steinman, Pale Robbie on the boards. Joining me today is another member of the Triforce Triumvirate. That is me. I am Derek Heemsberg and Embryon on the boards. Yep, Derek's here. He's going to talk a lot about A Link Between Worlds. But, you know, Link Between Worlds isn't the best Zelda game ever made. Oh, wait, no, it is. Stop it. No, no, it it is. It is. Good lord, we are going to gush over this game. So do not worry, ladies and gentlemen. We are not down on this game. We are not the people that are saying that it is a soulless pile of video game nostalgia. It is amazing. Who says that? Those aren't people. I don't know, man. There's been some kind of backlash on that game of just like, you know... It's not really good. I'm sitting here going, and you liked Skyward Sword? I saw I saw one middling review, and everybody else has been like, oh my god. Well, that, more people need to be like, oh my god, so that Nintendo Correct. gets the message. Because our opinion so, is the, the right troll? opinion. So then we also have John Tucker here, filling in for Steven, who is probably out in Narnia somewhere, or is just studying way too much in terms of graduate studies. Yeah, somebody needs to chill out, right? Well, somebody needs to be here. And John's been playing a lot of Diablo on consoles, a little bit of Baldur's Gate 2. So we got a lot of games to talk about today. But I think, I think we got to start with The Legend of Zelda, A Link Between Worlds. Am I right, well, ladies and gentlemen? Okay, this finally saves the princess. And he's a really cool guy. And no, really, you can start for real. But. Is it a good thing or a bad thing that Link does not have a personality in this one? Like, he is just the blank slate link yeah, that we always had before it doesn't really i mean it's i i would say it's neither good or bad it's just there um <laughs> you know he has a little bit of personality in his uh expressions but not too much like not nearly on the level that uh wind waker link has because he's super expressive well that was part of the reason why they did the wind waker art style is so like his eyes just kind of tell the whole story in that game which is really cool yeah like i'm never going to talk badly about wind waker that is a good game. But A Link Between Worlds, so this is taking place in the exact same overworld as A Link to the Past. Uh, little alterations here and there, like new new um, new environments, and they put like the heart pieces in different places. And it starts out amazingly similar to A Link to the Past in the first three dungeons. You have to go around, you have to get your pendants, kind of beat these kind of smaller dungeons, get a couple of tools, and then you get your Master Sword. And then you get to the Dark World, and the game's just like, alright dude, figure it out. Yep. They so they have this really cool open structure where you can choose which of the is it seven or eight? Seven? I think it's eight. I think it's eight. Yeah. Okay. Which of the eight dungeons you want to go to first? You can go in any order. Uh, all of the items are available at the same time. There's a shop that's in Link's house basically, and you can rent any item uh, for a low cost, and you can save. Basically, you can save up to buy each of those items, or you can just rent them. The only way well, that you lose them is if you die when they're rented. That's the thing that I wanted to ask about was was how how is that mechanic of, of renting versus buying? And like, okay. know, I wanted to ask why do you why would you rent versus buy? I think well, buying is a lot more expensive. It's usually about fifty rupees to rent or eight hundred to twelve hundred to buy. Um, but money is really plentiful in the game, so it's not really hard to save up. I mean, if you have a goal, if you say, I really want to buy the ice rod, you can just run out and find a bunch of rupees in maybe five minutes or so and come back and buy it. Um, I assume that, uh, that Link's standard mowing the lawn job is uh, <laughs> available. It is, and the uh, the fields of Hyrule are more plentiful than ever when it comes to rupees. Excuse me, rupees, because they'll, they'll be like 20 rupees, the red ones all over the place, and nice. there are even purple ones now. But um, the thing about the, the item rental system is that, so you lose them if you die, but 
it's pretty easy to go through the entire game without dying. I think I died once ever, and I had a fairy in a bottle, so it revived me. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that the item rental system is a really good idea, actually. I was kind of skeptical. I think it's a great concept, but I think that the game is easy enough, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's easy enough that you never actually need to buy them. Mm-hmm. The, the big benefit to buying them is, aside from not losing them, uh, there's a, a side quest that you can access a little bit later that, well, not even a little bit later. I think you can go there pretty much right away. But uh, there are these little squid babies called Mayamais. There's a hundred of them scattered across the two worlds. And they're they're everywhere. They're, they're hidden in walls, under rocks, um, in caves, whatever. So you find them as you're running around. And every time you get ten of them, you can go back to this cave and return them to their mother. And she will upgrade one of your bot weapons to a nice version. So you, mm-hmm. instead of the hookshot, you have the nice hookshot. Instead of the bomb, you have the nice bomb. Can we talk so, about how awesome the music is in that room first? <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. The music in the whole game is good, though. But, it, <clears throat> yeah. It, it's interesting because I, I kind of agree with Derek. I think that what they've done, by allowing you to get the items whenever you want and really letting you explore the dungeons in any order, th- what they do in the Dark World dungeons, uh, John, is they kind of do mm-hmm. this thing where to get into the dungeon you have to use an item so you're probably going to use the hook shot to get into the water dungeon and that's telling you hey dude you better have the hook shot for this dungeon sure. so they're incentivizing you to go out and get the items for the dungeon i think their rental system is brilliant it's maybe not as integral to the game as we all thought like i i agree with derek i died one time on the game just on a boss and i just immediately went back and and re-rented the items and then got back into beating the dungeon it was no big thing and i always bought the items because i spent so much time screwing around in the overworld i always bought the items instead of renting them after that point (laughs) so i think the the bigger thing that this game does is by letting you get the items in any order you want, you can tackle the dungeons in any order. I don't think that this is like a, a scenario where it fundamentally changes the game. You're not dealing with resource management. They, they're not microtransactions to to get the hook shot or the hammer or anything like that. I think it's more just to keep you honest and to give the the economy of a Zelda game some teeth. Because up until now, the economy of a Zelda game has been worthless. You find yes. 50 rupees yeah. and you're like... Who cares? Yeah, that's a really big point, too. And because you begin with a wallet that can hold, what, 9,999? Yep. So, yeah, so you're never at that point where you're like, well, I found this chest that had 100 rupees in it, but I can't do anything with it. Yeah. Yeah, they all went to waste because I had no space for two. Exactly. Yeah, it gives rupees actual value, which is cool. And even after you've gotten all of the weapons, because, and I think it's really well paced, They, they give you just the right amount. Because there were a few times where I went out of my way to get try to get a couple extra rupees here and there. But it was so well paced that I actually found myself, by the time I got to the final dungeon, that's when I was buying my final item. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, there are some other things you can do with rupees. I mean, there's like a ton of mini games um, scattered around the world. And my favorite is the Octorok Baseball, which is super ridiculous um, and really hard. But You know, I gotta say, I, okay. I gotta say sorry. Rob, you just gave me chills there with the idea, in the bad way, uh, of, with the idea of microtransactions in this game. I, people that were would, worried about that. Like, that would have been horrible. Yeah, because well, that's kind of been like the biggest debate. Uh, yeah, I don't think we're going to talk too much about the next gen consoles. I don't think. Do any of us have the next gen consoles, Derek? Do you, yeah, oh, you got a PS4. Okay, but like, there's been all this backlash, especially on the Xbox One, with like Forza and the way its economy system is set up, and I'm. I'm. I guess we're all a little nervous that the next generation of consoles is going to be the consoles of microtransactions. Like, well, 
you know, this is Gran Turismo 13, you could get the Bugatti Veyron for 1 billion credits in-game, and you earn 5,000 for each race, or you could give us 20 bucks, and we'll give you the Bugatti Veyron right now. I really hope yeah. that doesn't happen. I mean, that it's already happened in some games, but I hope that yeah. doesn't become the trend. Well, thankfully, it's not the case in Zelda, so... <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I... Earlier this year, way earlier this year, I think it was about like January of 2013, I played um, Pokemon Mystery Dungeon, Gates to Infinity, and that had microtransactions, and you could buy extra dungeons. Uh, it was oh, about really? five bucks, five bucks each, if I remember right. And the different dungeons were geared towards uh, different types of Pokemon. Like there was one that was that was good for training up your fighting guys and, and whatever else, and uh, I actually bought one for my review just so I'd be able to, you know, you know, check that out and see how it was, and and it was okay. Um, I guess actually it's, it's sort of more more DLC, right? Because you couldn't unlock that content any other way than just buying it. Um, right. Yeah. But I was I, w- I was still glad to not see that kind of thing in any of the other DS games I played this year. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, I, there's things like in Theater Rhythm, you can buy songs for a buck a piece, but I'm having trouble thinking of any other... I mean, th- one might exist, but any other 3DS or, or Nintendo games uh, in particular that have microtransactions of that level, where it's just like pay for convenience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm of the opinion that um, DLC can be okay when it's adding something substantial or purely cosmetic that doesn't affect the game in any way, mm-hmm. like... If they want to add extra costumes or something, that's fine. Like to me, that's the idea of DLC. If they aren't skimping out on what they would normally do, like an example of that is uh, the Tales games. They used to have tons of extra costumes for all the characters that you could unlock by doing side quests. And in recent years, the trend has been, okay, we'll give you one or two extra costumes per character, and then all the rest are DLC. And they want like three dollars a costume. So that that bothers me because it's like, well, clearly your development practice has changed because you used to just implement that as part of your normal game design and now you want us to pay extra money for it so i have a problem with that but when it's stuff like you know uh, this game's already out and then after after it's been out they work on a couple extra costumes or a, a cool a cool side story like that kind of stuff is fine but microtransactions bother me well I, at, at the risk of getting us really off topic i, I just want to bring up an article that i read uh over on actionbutton.net i, I always like those guys and their writing style uh, their, their final fantasy 13 review is hilarious because it's like a 20-page dissertation, this rambling, just absolute assault on the game. It's really funny to read. But they did this thing on um, Dead Space 3, and they talked about how, you know, when I played the original Dead Space, I never wanted this to be the only game that I played. I didn't want it to be in a model of, like, a Farmville or a Final Fantasy fourteen or a World of Warcraft. I didn't need this to be a microtransaction kind of incremental, but not saying the Final Fantasy XIV has microtransactions, but this like incremental build-up, this game about loot, this game about armor, this game that you are meant to play like it's your job. And the people were just like, this is not what I was expecting Dead Space to become. And that really made me sit down and go, I don't want to play a game that becomes my job. I, I was We were talking in the pre-show warm-up about a lot of games that I've been playing lately, like small little games. We'll talk about Rogue Legacy in a few minutes, but... There was something really nice about sitting down, playing Zelda, finishing it, closing my 3DS, and going, okay, that was an awesome experience. I am ready for the next game. 
there is very little appeal to me to play a game for a super incredible amount of time. I, there are exceptions, obviously, I won't bring them up, but there there's very little incentive for me to play a game like Dead Space and go, oh yeah, this is going to be the game that I play for the next three months. No, I want to play a, a short, tight horror experience. I'm not interested in something that's microtransaction heavy or something that's designed for me to play for hundreds and hundreds of hours. What's wrong with a 10 to 12 hour experience? Nothing, well, I would say. Yeah, it, it definitely seems like there's room for all kinds of, of games. You know, I, I think a lot of folks have that experience that, you know, the, the stereotypical thing to say is that when you're younger, you have all this time, and so you play, and you want to play games that are really, really long. And then when you mm-hmm. grow up, you have a lot, you have a lot more disposable income and a lot less free time available to you. So you want games that are going to bring you you know, a shorter, fun experience that you can be done and, and move on to the next thing because, hey, a 10 or 20 hour game when you were a kid might have taken you a weekend to beat when you have a job and, you know, kids of your own and whatever else responsibilities, that's going to take you a few weeks to get through. And I don't know that that's true for everyone, but that's definitely... Well, it certainly is true for a lot of people. I mean, it, otherwise that wouldn't be the general feeling. Um and I'm I'm okay with with larger games that are a lot that are longer and more dense because you know I don't mind spending time with a, a long game if it's a good game. I mean, mm-hmm. l- length doesn't really matter in in that sense, but it does matter when uh, when they're when games are just being bloated for no reason. Like mm-hmm. it's like you said, like Dead Space is just kind of a focused experience. It's it's very much the quintessential action game where you play through it and it's you know like ten hours and you're like all right. That was like a really satisfying movie or whatever. Mm-hmm. But a game like, I know I always bring it up, like Xenoblade is really long because there's so much to do and none of it feels like dumb filler. Like, oh, I just want to get through this part, except for, I guess, the end gauntlet. But, you know, like it's long, but that's okay because it's full of meaningful things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it no, doesn't mean, yeah, so. I yeah. agree. All right, yeah. I made my point. Oh, yeah. ah. Can we talk about the best feature about Zelda, I think? Octrive Which... Baseball. No, 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 no. Okay. For me, A Link Between Worlds, it's like Nintendo got my message when I was complaining about Skyward Sword. And I'm not saying Skyward Sword's a bad game. It's not. It, it wasn't for me, but I, I acknowledge that it's a, it's a good game. But I was so incredibly put off by the super intense, like, hey, Link, go over here and lift this thing. Now you know how to lift this thing. Go over here, Link, do this thing. Now you know how to do this thing. Hey, Link, here's some toilet paper. You need to wipe your bum. Like, this was... I've been playing Zelda for a while, guys. I think I can figure this out. And it even went so far as to do that in the dungeons. This game, A Link Between Worlds, just lets you experiment. And it really... it, It does this amazing visual design that harkens back to like super metroid when they there's like been dissertations written on super metroid about how amazing that game does barely gives you any text any menus to tell you how to do anything it's all learn by doing and there was this really fun part in one of the dungeons in one of the dark world dungeons and i'm gonna it's a little bit of a spoiler but it's not a major one there was a button on a raised platform and I'm sitting there going, how the hell am I going to hit that button? And I start moving around the dungeon. I can't really figure it out. And then they have those hand enemies that come down and grab you and try to take you back to the start of the dungeon. And I noticed that that hand enemy was always doing a slam attack to try to get me. And he was always above me. So I said, well, wait a minute. 
what if I put my shadow and myself right below the button so that he'll smash? Sure enough, he smashed the button and he opened up the door. Yes. And I didn't have to. I didn't have to get a menu and say, "Hey, listen, you need to get him to smash the button." The game just let me do it. Yeah. Just let me figure it out. I I think I had this. I, I talked about this exact uh, kind of design uh, on either the last podcast or the one before, where I really really like games that lead you invisibly and and let you figure things out on your own but they don't have to be really heavy-handed in telling you but it's also made clear just because of the you you can just put it together like based on my knowledge of the game mechanics and what's happening in this area i can deduce that blank and games like skyward sword lately have been like oh my god like i know tooker really likes uh you really like mario and luigi dream team right i did yeah that was a great game Okay, I really like the combat in that game, and I like the aesthetic, and I wanted to love it, but it kept giving me tutorials, and and it was just like in Skyward Sword, which I also really liked, uh, and I still like both of those games, but I'm just really sick of these heavy-handed tutorials telling me, hey, you should go into the battle and press the A button to attack, and I'm like, yes, I know that. Mm -hmm. I, I, I figured that out within a second of holding the controller if that A makes me attack. You don't need to tell me. I've been playing uh, State of Decay for the past two days, which is a game that a lot of people say it's like a zombie RPG. It's not really. It's more of an open world, like Assassin's Creed style zombie game. I'm really, really liking it. I'm very intrigued by it. I would be playing it right now, but I can't concentrate and, and do the podcast at the same time. Unlike Steven. No, Steven can do it. Steve, Steven can multitask. I cannot. I am a typical male, and I cannot multitask. What does that have to do with being male? That's kind of one of the stereotypes is that yeah. women can multitask and guys and can't. guys can't. Yeah. Apparently our brains are not hard. I haven't heard that, and I refute it. Okay, well, that's fine. But this game, like, State of Decay is a really cool game. I'm really, really into it. But good lord, like, three hours into playing it, I'm still reading menus and trying to figure out, like, the game's not telling me the key pieces of information, but it's telling me over and over again the stuff that doesn't matter. Like, I forget which game I I said that. It was like, uh, you know, the game's telling me how to do all these things, but I'm sitting here going, like, hey, how do I swing my sword? Like, this feels weird. Like, I I don't quite know. I think it might have been Skyward Sword. Like, I never got the flapping motion right of the the bird. Like, I never really understood how to do that motion, but the game was telling me over and over again about how to use, like, bombs and stuff. And I'm like, no, 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 I get that, but this other piece of information, like... I think I needed that a little bit more, and it's like this hand-holdy game design, which, again, is not bad, but the best games allow you to discover how to do it on your own as a player, and there's so much more rewarding for it. And that's the thing that I just can't get over with Skyward Sword, is you go into a dungeon, and you just figure it out. Yep. That seems that seems like a really hard, sweet spot for, for a lot of developers oh, yeah. to find. Yeah, of for sure. How much, how much do we tell people? How much do we make them figure out? I don't know, did you guys ever, and I know this isn't something we covered, but I think it's probably something everybody plays, did you guys ever play through uh, the Portal games with the developer commentary on? Oh, yeah. It's brilliant. It is. Because they, that's one of the things that they talk about a lot is uh, the things that they learned from their their playtesting of where they would say, you know, this level turned out to be, you know, players could not figure out how to do this thing or players were doing this in a really way more complicated way than they needed to. And so... We switched this, you know, we switched this platform from the left side to the right side, and all of a sudden everything was fine. Mm-hmm. It's like, how do you direct the player to recognize everything that's important in a room? And like the worst puzzles in games are puzzles that you don't even realize, like what you need. 
where you're just going around and fiddling with things to get them to work. I mean, as much as I love The Walking Dead, I mean, the, the puzzles in that game are just, you know, take object and rub it up against other object. And I actually hit, like, a complete dead stop in the game on the second uh, chapter because I had no idea how what order it wanted me to do the stuff. And I had no way of knowing except by going through and just trying it. And I found that to be very frustrating. Meanwhile, Link Between Worlds just constantly, it, it makes you feel smart in, in a way. You, you feel clever whenever you solve something. When you think about, like, oh, I'm going to throw this bomb over here to hit this switch. Oh, that worked. And it, it makes you feel like you're breaking the game. And it, this is a game design conceit that I really, really like. It's like uh, Disgaea does it, too. It makes you feel like you're breaking it. You feel like you're solving the game by using the tools that you have, and you're not just fitting a lock into a key. You're not just using the bomb in the one instance of a bomb. You're sitting there thinking, oh, I'm solving this with one of my tools, but I probably could have done it with another tool. And it may be the, the fact that you actually could only solve it with one tool, but since the game is backed up and let you try things, it rewards you for the experience and for just being intuitive and trying things. Well, I know... You guys have talked plenty on the show about, you know, like System Shock and things like that. And I think that's where the, those kind of games succeed is in saying, you know, just try stuff. Something's going to work and you try stuff. And if something works, you're like, hey, sweet, I figured that out. I wonder if that's what they meant for me to do. Mm-hmm. Yep. Those are the best kind of game, games for me. I mean, uh, you know, uh, we're going to uh, talk a little bit about Game of the Year here pretty soon. And we're, we're doing our vote castings. And, you know, I, I'm being 100% honest. The Link Between Worlds is at the top of my list for this year. It was just such a rewarding experience to play. And, man, if, if you've been even just a little disillusioned with Zelda or if you're kind of like, oh, what, what new stuff can they show you? They're able to show you what old school Zelda used to be like where it, it used to be about trying stuff and finding things and just experimenting without being told exactly what to do. Their overworld design is fantastic. Even getting to the Dark World dungeons is a puzzle in and of itself, which I found really yeah. surprising. Like, you got to figure out how to get over to that area. It's really cool stuff. Yeah, and there were actually one or two dungeons where I was like, okay, uh, I see where it is on the map, but how do I get there? Like the Death Mountain one. Just, and that's cool because that gives you, that's, you know, it's not just... The dungeons are the meat of the gameplay, and the overworld is filler. It's like the fill- the overworld is actually something integral to the game experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a damn good game. And, <laughs> it really uh, is. I I've, uh, I said this earlier uh, before we were actually on the podcast, but it may not be my very very favorite game of the year. It is up there, but it's almost a perfect video game, just in terms of of being a sheer game game experience. It's it's almost flawless. I mean, like. It controls great. The frame rate is perfect. Uh, the everything is so well designed without being heavy-handed. It's just it's a great game, and it doesn't have a really you know other games do other things better, which is fine. Like other games have meatier stories or more in-depth game mechanics, but this is just it's so it has the the right amount of it has the perfect scope and the perfect balance of all of its uh, features. I just I'm really impressed by it. It's crazy. Really enjoyed it. I, man, I, I thought that maybe I would want to get a Wii U for the new Legend of Zelda whenever they announce it. Probably at E3, I think we'll see it for the first time. And, you know, maybe that'll make me really excited and go pick it up. But I wouldn't mind just getting another one of these in, like, two years. Just as just getting another one. it's not the same. Yeah, I mean, it, this was fantastic. I just I don't want another one of the same thing, just like you don't want Dark Souls 3. No, you're right. And, and I think that that's the one... 
I, I wouldn't say it's a complaint, but I wonder because I, this game I think straddles nostalgia and um, innovation in a really really cool way. But I almost wonder if they kind of did themselves a disservice by having the overworld from a link to the past. You know what I mean? Like, would well, would it would it have blown me away even more? If it had been its own overworld. Probably. Probably. But, I mean, there are enough changes to it to make it feel new. But, yeah, you you look at it and its basic structure is, is the same. Right. And then I also wonder, is this game made for us? Like the old guys, the guys that played A Link to the Past on the Super Nintendo? Or is. is this made for everybody? I really, I mean, it, I do think it's made for everybody. But I do think that they took into consideration that there are a lot of people that enjoyed Link to the Past. And so there are knots for that purpose. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I will let you know if I play it, because uh, I never had a Super Nintendo when I was a kid, even though I, I am old enough to have had one. So I never played Link uh, to the Past. What is with the hate for A Link to the Past? Uh, I mean, I'm it surfaced this... really recently. Once this game started to get popular, or right before it yeah. came out, people were like, mm, well, I never liked Link to the Past, so... Like, yeah. really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I've uh, never heard anything but gushing <laughs> praise for Link to yeah. the Past. People people like to hate on stuff just because it's popular. Yep. Is that and what that, it is? Because like I was yeah. a little I, I was a little surprised. Like I always found a link to the past to be like this phenomenal game, and yeah. I I've I've played it recently again, and I really really like it. I have also, and I think it's it's fine if you don't like it. Just because you know yeah. if you've tried it and you're like, eh, it's just not for me. Cool, no problem. But there was this huge, almost outpouring of people being very up in arms about, well, I don't know why they made another Link to the Past, because that game always sucked anyway. And it's like, what? what yeah. I don't get... Well, it's like the... We, we've talked many times about it in the past, like the, the Twilight Princess backlash. Twilight yeah. Princess was heralded at the time as, like, the greatest video game ever. Like, video game Jesus had come down and led us to the promised land. I think Jeff Gersman was the only one who gave it, like, an 8 or something. Every other review was in, insane. And then in recent years, people are like, well, you know, it was just Ocarina of Time 2. And I'm like, yeah, that's but back then, wanted. that's what you wanted. That's what you guys complained about. Like, mm-hmm. good lord. I, I Again, rewriting of history when it comes to game design. I just, I'm waiting for when somebody says Super Metroid's a bad game, and that's when I'm going to stab them. <laughs> that's uh, when I'm going to hurt somebody. There like, are no. people out there that have said that, but I refuse to acknowledge that those are actual humans. Yeah, can't make Metroid jump. Like, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> like, oh, God. So yeah, Link Between Worlds, if you haven't played it yet, um, God, this was a great year for the 3DS. Sure <laughs> like, was. Yeah, yeah. Definitely a great game to pick up, and I highly recommend it. Yes. Uh, at the risk of talking too much, uh, or at the risk of me talking too much, I will just say I played a lot of Rogue Legacy on PC. It came up on Steam Sale, on the Steam Spring Sale now. It seems like now we're going to do a Spring Sale, then we're going to do like a month later another sale. They just want all my money. Yeah. Um, so Rogue Legacy, 2D side-scroller, very much in the vein of old-school Castlevania, Metroid. Eh, look, Metroid came up again. Hey, it, am, I, am I the only one that really wants a 2D Metroid game on 3DS now? Oh my god, now? Like, I want that so Definitely bad. not. Like, yeah. come on, guys. Like, If A Link Between Worlds does well, I think we can get, like, Super Metroid 2. You know, uh, at the VGX show last night, LOL. Which was uh, really disappointing, I gotta say. Like, not really, a whole lot of... Did you expect it to be... I wanted to announce, dude. Last year we got Dark Souls two announced. Like this year was like meh. Well, I mean the two Telltale games they announced look cool, uh, but uh, <laughs> right, I know. But but uh, 
I think when Reggie was there giving his earth-shattering announcement of Cranky Kong and Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze, um, he somebody said something. I, I think the host, I didn't actually watch the show. I just read this in an article. But uh, I guess the host said, um, like, hey, so can we see a new Metroid? And then he said something very coy, like, I don't know, we'll see. But I, 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 I tried to... I tried to watch a video of that segment this morning, and, and it was just so awkward, and so sorry. I, I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't watch it. Well, you know, we, we, we've been clamoring for a new uh, Super Metroid, like, 2D game, even though I, I love Metroid uh, Prime and Metroid Prime 2. I think they're great games. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, Rogue Legacy kind of fits into that that vein a little bit you know it's super super hard randomly generated dungeon you're moving through and trying to beat bosses and i really really like rogue legacy i i played the ever-loving crap out of it for like three days and then i beat it and i kind of cooled on it but it really has this nefarious gameplay design where when you die and you're gonna die a lot i died 96 times beating this game when you die you then get to take over as one of your ancestors so you play as another character you get a choice between three at the start of every dungeon run and then you get to spend all the gold that you accrued on your last run and you upgrade your abilities your health your magic output your mana uh you get new equipment and so it's this really like cool game design where when you die you immediately start upgrading so you have this like initial regret uh yeah descendant sorry sorry john john got in there and i I said the wrong thing so i went i went the wrong way in terms of genealogy i'm sorry um and it's this really awesome game design of like when you die you get that initial ah shoot and then you go wait a minute i get to upgrade and then you upgrade and then you immediately want to go back into the dungeon and do more stuff it's this brilliant game design where it it incentivizes you to die almost in a way like you'll reach a point where you're like wow if i die right now i can start upgrading and that's just there's something about death in video games and this is one of the reasons why i mean we all know what game i love so much but there there's something about death in video games not being the end i think that's something that heavy rain did very well like you can die as one of the main characters in heavy rain and the the story continues I want to see more of this, more of like make death part of the mechanic, like XCOM. When you lose a character, it's permadeath. Uh, same with State of Decay, like the, these games that like you could invest a lot of time into a character. And then when they die, that's a BFD. That That's huge. Something to make death palpable instead of just like the, oh, I died back to a checkpoint. Yeah. I think the, the worst example of that was like I died one time playing Infamous and I just restarted at the exact same fight. I went back 15 seconds. And yeah. I just was staring at the game like, that death was meaningless. Like, now I'm just going to beat this scenario and it's not going to do anything. Like, what was the point in dying? It, it, it wasn't hard. It wasn't difficult. I just took a rocket launcher to the face. And now I'm just immediately restarting. I didn't lose any progress. Nothing happened. It was just, okay, you read this one paragraph in a book. Now read the paragraph again. Did you um, did you ever play the Infinity Blade games? Or no, not, like not. iOS. Those in, in those, it's sort of a cross between uh, those different concepts. And I, I'm not saying this is a good thing, but when you die, you suppose you you start up again at the beginning as the son of the guy who you just were, but you have exactly the same equipment, you have exactly the same level. Every you know, all your stats are exactly the same, so it's like they tried to do that thing, uh, but they they didn't really succeed. Yeah, there's, you, no, you, there's no tactical. feeling yeah. of of consequence. It's just oh, well, I 
I'm, I'm starting over at the first fight again, mm-hmm. which yeah. the game is intended to be played through a bunch of times anyway. So um, did you also play uh, earlier this year? I played a game called Legend of Dungeon. It's uh, it's on PC. And that game is, is also it's, it's a roguelike. You, you are supposed to die a bunch. And when you get to that point where you've actually got yourself some pretty sweet equipment and you a ways down in that dungeon you start thinking oh man i do not want to die now yeah yeah it's it's you're, you'll start over with no equipment and you know you're back to level one it's just really really smart game design and it makes me it keeps me from feeling like i'm wasting my time and and don't get me wrong like i did get frustrated with rogue legacy i think that the the one thing that bothers me about that game is that it's very, very random, both in dungeon layout and also in the descendants that you get after you die. So if you want to beat a boss, I always found that I wanted to have like a paladin-type character, a character that could take some hits, had some armor, and had decent damage output. But especially beating the last boss, I ended up getting nothing but mages and worthless classes for fighting bosses, and it just would happen over and over again. So then I would be like, well, I'm not going to go try to kill the boss. I'm just going to get some gold so I can upgrade my characters. Okay, I died. All right, now it's time for the paladin. Oh, come on. I didn't get a paladin. All right, now we got to do it again. And I was really wasting my time. Like, I was actually talking on the phone with Steven for like two hours. We were just catching up. And in that time, I went through like six runs until I finally got a character to beat the last boss. So like the randomness at that point started to irritate me a little bit. It never got too bad, but overall, like the game just does a really good job of incentivizing you to go in, level up, and I I couldn't get over how hard the game was. Like I died on the second room the first time I went into the castle. I just Mm -hmm. got obliterated. So it's definitely a cool game. I would recommend looking into it. Uh, I know they're going to do a Vita version of it. Sometime in the beginning of 2014, I think. Yeah, that'll be nice. cool. Good game for the Vita, and I, I yeah. want to see if those guys make a sequel to kind of like expand a little bit. Because it, it is kind of a smaller game. It's an indie title. And after I beat it, I was kind of like, okay, I'm done. I, I don't need to play anymore. But it was that game took over my life for like three days, where I just woke up in the morning, got some coffee, and sat down and started playing. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, that means their design was solid. Oh yeah, yeah, no, it was really good. That was uh, that's gonna be on my top, uh, my top list as well. I was really, really, really surprised by it. Very tight controls, almost so tight that it feels weird at first. Like you're not used to playing as these super responsive characters if you played like old school Castlevania or Mega Man. So that that kind of threw me for a loop right away. But definitely a good game. Look into it, and my review will hopefully go live at some point. Derek, thank you again for the proof and Certainly. for. And for, uh, you know, pointing out that apparently I'm a little rusty on writing. <laughs> I think you were just tired. <laughs> I appreciate yeah. that. I'm like, what was I on? Like, I, you were, I don't think you're rusty. I think you're fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and uh, I'm sad that I missed out on that because, like you said, it was on sale again uh, last week. But I missed the sale price because I was broke. So when it inevitably goes on sale during the winter sale, I'll pick it up. Yep. Definitely a good purchase. For sure. So, are we going to talk about what uh, Tucker's been playing? Yeah, so uh, yeah. Tucker is like the last member, uh, the last person on Earth playing Diablo 3, apparently. Yes. <laughs> I, I, uh, I've, been, I've actually been sort of alternating back and forth uh, between the console and the PC version, kind of just messing around with it to see what are the differences, how does it feel. I, I, I reviewed uh, the console version a while back uh, when it first came out, and I had played the PC version 
uh, way back at the beginning. Um, but uh, I've been so busy with other games for the site that I really haven't had a lot of time this year to play stuff that I just wanted to play. And so somehow when I finally had some time to just play stuff for fun, that's what I went back to was, uh, was Diablo three. Um, it's, uh, and you know, I was, I, I saw Rob online on the PC version pretty recently. And I was telling him that the, the differences are, are just crazy. It's, it's almost like they really shouldn't have made the PC version at all. Like they really? should have just made the, the console version. I, I know that's a little bit of a strange thing to say, but the difference is it, it's just night and day in terms of the experience of hacking and slashing and going through levels and having to stop versus not having to stop in, in the PC version you're getting a lot of just kind of garbage loot. And so if you have, if you don't have a lot of characters or whatever, you find yourself picking up all that loot so you can take it back to town and then selling it off and going back into the dungeon and, you know, repeating that process over and over again. And in the console version, uh, for one thing, uh, you have a lot more inventory space than you do on the PC version. But then for another thing, they don't give you as much loot. Uh, that you get a lot more money instead of loot. I get the feeling that you know the behind the scenes it rolls for whatever loot's going to drop from the enemy, and if it's you know something that's not really great, it just drops some money instead of bothering with loot. Um, and you also get a, a lot more targeted loot, uh, which is a double-edged sword. Uh, I'm, I'm playing as a a demon hunter mostly on uh, my PS3 and she doesn't get a lot of loot for, you know, she doesn't get a lot of barbarian exclusive weapons or the, you know, witch doctor hats or whatever, which is nice in that, you know, I couldn't use that stuff for her anyway, but it's also less cool in that if I have, you know, if I have a, uh, a witch doctor that I want to start up afterwards. That guy's, you know, he's he's on his own pretty much. He's gonna have to deal with, you know, whatever kind of. You don't have to move stuff around be- between characters using the chest or anything. Yeah, you don't. You you have less of an opportunity to do that because you you get less stuff. And even I've noticed um, if my witch doctor, or sorry, if my demon hunter gets a, a witch doctor hat dropped it's more likely to have like dexterity boosts on it, which are useless for a witch doctor mm-hmm. where he, he's looking for intelligence. Now that is the loot 2.0 system, correct? That they've been touting. They started it in the console version and apparently the PC version is going to get it with the Reaper of souls expansion. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, uh, and, uh, go, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, the, the other big thing, is just movement in general and I would really really love to see them although they've said they won't put console controls or you know controller support on the PC version um, because you have uh, the left stick walks around the right stick makes you roll uh, and you know in the PC version it's left click on the ground to walk there left click on an enemy to attack them so 
especially if you are playing a, a class like a, a demon hunter or whatever that's not as resistant to damage you all of a sudden find yourself in on the pc version trying to run away from combat and instead you click on an enemy and you attack them and you die mm. whereas yeah. on the console version you can just you can roll out of combat you you still can get trapped if you're you know up against a wall and there's a bunch of enemies and stuff you you can still get trapped so those skills um like the vault skill for the the demon hunter that lets you just kind of jump a certain direction and the teleport for the wizard those are still useful but not as useful do they um is there an invincibility on the frames when you actually use the roll so could you use that to dodge an attack or is it that you're just moving in a certain direction and you can still take damage uh it it, it still seems like you take damage it, it it's almost like you're invincible during the roll but the damage comes in after you you finish the roll oh weird yeah, it it is a. It, I I wouldn't call it like really janky or anything, but it does, it does feel weird a few times where you're like, oh sweet, I got out of the way. Oh no, I didn't. Yeah, that because hmm. that that's been the biggest problem with you know finishing Diablo three on Inferno was a trial, and I managed to do it with my Witch Doctor. I don't think I can do it with my Demon Hunter. It's just way too frustrating. But that game, just like John's pointing out, when you decide, oh boy, I got to turn tail and run. And you accidentally click on an enemy, and that gets you killed. That just sucks. Like that just really, really sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Go ahead. One other thing that that I I don't love on the uh, console version is if you uh, playing multiplayer is a lot of fun. It's really easy. Uh, you know, in general, works really well, but. If you're both playing as characters from the same, like, PSN user, only the first character has access to the chest and things like that, uh, and and crafting with the um, uh, the blacksmith guy and things like that. The second person, they they don't have the opportunity to do that stuff. They can pick things up off the ground and then they can just you know drop them and then. If they sell them, the, the money all goes into that same account because, you know, the money is shared. But they can't use the chest at all, uh, and that gets really frustrating sometimes. Yeah. That kind of that kind of limits your, um, I don't know, that's too bad that it limits your options because the game on the console is clearly meant to be a multiplayer experience. So yeah. for it to kind of restrict those features for everybody but the primary player is a little bit of an oversight, I'd say. Well, that was the biggest problem with Dungeon Siege 3, which I, I just couldn't even understand, was, like, when you go into another person's world, like, you couldn't collect loot. Oh. And, and I was just like, what? Like, <laughs> I'm just helping this person? And on the PC, it was even more idiotic, because you were confined to one screen. So it, it was just like, what is going... Like, that game was designed for couch co-op. Steven and I argued about it back and forth. He had a ball of a time playing it on console. On PC, it was like the dumbest game I've ever played. Yeah. Like, just w- w- who thought this was a good idea? Clearly, you guys just made a PC version, but, like, yikes. You need to completely redesign your loot system if that's what you're going to do. It's like the... Uh, which fable was it? One of the fables. You could play multiplayer. But, yeah, you if you weren't... The lead character you were just you know a, a companion who didn't get any loot didn't get any money didn't get any experience you're a helper yeah yeah 
And there's something to be said for that. I mean, that can that can be okay, but yeah, I don't know. Especially with games where you can have progression. I I, I have a hard time with being an indentured servant when yeah. I'm playing a video game with somebody. Right, yeah. So Anyway, but yes, yeah, so Diablo 3 on the, on the console, a lot of fun. I, I'm actually looking forward to uh, when it does come out on the PS4. Mm-hmm. Hopefully I will have a PS4 at that point. Uh, because that version, I was just reading about it the other day, that version, they're, they're tweaking some stuff again. Um, and it will come with the expansion pack and yeah. you know a bunch of stuff. So, you know. I'm uh, I'm legitimately excited to to try that expansion out. Um, I probably won't get it for either console since I still have the PC version, obviously. But I, I it's cool. Like I was one of the people who thought that Diablo three was a flawed but still enjoyable game. So I I beat it once. I started a playthrough on uh, hard. Or what's the second difficulty? Is it nightmare? Nightmare and then hell. Yeah. Okay, I, I forget because. Uh, there's like in East games, nightmare is the hardest because it goes like normal hard nightmare. So, hmm. but uh, yeah, so I, I actually really look forward to, to trying it again, um, especially with the new class and everything they add. And I don't know if they like gave me the console version for free, which they won't, I would try it out. But you know. yeah, yeah, it, it's, I agree with you, Derek. I think it's a flawed game, but it, it was a lot of fun. I still think that their combat in terms of loot games is incredible. It's the reason I couldn't get into Path of Exile. I just didn't. I think Path of Exile's progression system is incredible, but their moment-to-moment combat just, it's not flashy. It doesn't feel powerful. I mean, everything in Diablo 3 feels awesome. Like, when you just summon up a corpse to explode acid over everybody, that's just awesome. Uh, I love throwing spider jars. Yes. Thing ever. Use the number one fear that I have against everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, oh man, it's so satisfying. Just like clink, and then the spiders go clink. I love the uh, I love on the, on the demon under the bolo shot because you you I feel I have that stupid movie feeling of walking away from the explosion. Yes. Like, you're already dead and you don't even know it yet. Yep. I, I loved rapid fire for the demon oh, yeah. hunter. That that like you just feel like you're in a John Woo film. Mm. <laughs> just nothing can come near you. It is a really good game. I think yeah. that they they've got some good ideas going on over there. Now they're going to put in the adventure system into the game, which is just like a progression of dungeons to beat a boss that'll give you extra loot. It really sounds like they're trying to make that game. You know, I just got done talking about how I don't like games that want you... They, I don't like games that want this to become your job, but it sounds like with Diablo, they've kind of realized that that's what a lot of people wanted. A lot of people just want to play Diablo over and over again. With Diablo 2, it was always making a new character build, like, hey, I'm going to make a, a druid that focuses on werewolf, and then I'm going to make a, an Amazon that fo- focuses on pole arms or something. And I, I think people really want that. They want to play Diablo forever, and they're going to go back and kind of enhance the game a little bit to try to do that. Yeah. So. I can see that. Baldur's Gate 2, John Tucker, you're uh, yeah. playing a game from, what, two decades ago? Yeah, I, I, I played the uh, enhanced edition of uh, Baldur's Gate 2. I didn't actually orig- play the uh, original back in the day. I had uh, the first Baldur's Gate. I played maybe like a half hour of it. I got out of like the little town and wandered into the wilderness and probably got killed by a bear. And that was enough for me. Um, so, yeah, I jumped into 
the enhanced edition recently on the PC. And I, I think it was really, you know, it, it kind of goes on, on what you were talking about before Rob with the not knowing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. That was my biggest issue with, with Baldur's Gate two is that I, I've never had the opportunity to play uh, Dungeons and Dragons or any other of the paper and pen games with friends. Uh, so I don't have that background to draw from. And I also don't have the experience of having played this particular game when it originally released. So you know, in my review, I talked about, you know, imagine being dropped into a, a world where, you know, every, anything is a possibility just about, but then imagine, you know, being dropped into that world as a fully grown adult and being set and being told, well, now you have to form this character and do all these things, but you don't know the rules of, of how this world works. It was, you know, even just creating a character was a, was a daunting experience. Yeah. So I'm yeah. in the same boat. Yeah. I, uh, I also didn't play a lot of that kind of stuff when I was growing up, especially I didn't play very many PC RPGs in general. So I missed out on, on Baldur's Gate and those kinds of experiences that a lot of people grew up with. So when I when I try to go back and play those kinds of games, I'm I'm lost. Um, and yeah. I like to think that I'm pretty good at figuring out how to play video games. I don't need to read instruction manuals or, sure. you know, I don't need those tutorials most of the time. But in a game like that, it can, it can be kind of daunting. And uh, I know that a lot of people hold that game in really high esteem. And so I, I don't mean it as a slight against those people at all because I recognize that it is a really good game. But I just I also have difficulty getting into those. Yeah, and, and yeah, that's uh, definitely not say this is a bad game. Uh, it's just it's a, it's sort of at this point in its life, it's a targeted experience, mm -hmm. and if you are yeah. not on that target, you may not enjoy it, and you may not understand why other people love it so much. But if you are on that target, you're going to play this thing. You think this is an amazing experience. I'm so glad I had it. Mm -hmm. Yep, I can agree with that. Yep, yep. Uh, before Derek has a chance to get to ease, I just wanted to ask: Am I the only one that watched the Dragon Age Three leaked video that came at Dragon Age Inquisition? Like their their whole like twenty minute presentation that they did. I think it was at PAX. Uh, I saw that too. That was pretty awesome. Holy so, hell! Where where they went in and they 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 were in a, at one point they were in a big cave and they fought a giant guy. I don't remember what is. I mean uh, it. Yeah. wow like they really opened that game up I, I i will say i mean their art design looks incredible i've always liked the dragon age art design uh, i think that was one thing about two that they did really really well their art design was really good um uh, they're really opening up the world and but the one thing that i gotta say man that looked like skyrim like right down to like the the overhead compass that points out unknown places that are near you and which direction you need to go like man they weren't kidding when they said they took some inspiration from skyrim i mean the combat looks completely different it, it's very action-based but they're also putting in like the the being able to pause and move around and attack things but i was i was surprised both at how action focused it was and how much it looked like skyrim yeah but it seems like they took the criticisms that people had about well at least the, so as far as we can tell from that the criticism people had about dragon age 2 yeah. About 
you know, being stuck in this little place. And we'll see in terms of the storyline how that goes, because people definitely had their beefs with certainly the ending of, of two. Yeah, and and it's like, how are we going to do the combat? Is it going to be action-focused? Is it going to be tactical? I, I think there's a lot of question marks, but from what they showed, I mean, wow, just their technology looks outstanding. I mean, that's that's the stuff that really interests me about Next Gen, is not so much the bells and whistles, but being able to do really being able to latch on to vision like they they just showed that new trailer for the witcher 3 oh my god like they they really now they have the power to do some really really cool stuff and it isn't so much about lighting so much as what can you do with the world now and for somebody that likes to explore worlds that just has me really really excited yeah derek ease ease not y apostrophe s wise wise i will slay you that's what I always called it as a kid, man. Yeah, I think I did too. I did not know any better. But now I do, and there's no going back. Now I have the knowledge. Um, so, East Memories of Celsetta released on the Vita a couple weeks ago. And it is the... I don't remember how much I've gone over this on the show before. Maybe it's your first episode. Hey, welcome to Random Encounter. I like East a lot. So, East Memories of Celsetta is a complete reimagining of East 4. Um, this has been basically, it's been completely built from the ground, rebuilt from the ground up. And the really short version of East 4's history is that there were actually two versions of East 4 made back in the day. Both versions never made it outside Japan, and they were both Super Famicom games. Um, one was called East 4 Mask of the Sun, and one was called East 4 The Dawn of East. Uh, both of these games were developed by studios other than Falcom, who is the primary developer of East. And as such, they were always, uh, it was kind of contentious, I guess, as to which was considered the official East 4. Um, so recently, Falcom decided to make their own, finally. So this is the official new canon version of East 4. It takes elements from the previous two and blends them together um, in terms of story and uh, introduces a, a bunch of new characters and stuff. So, so this is a, a basically completely new East 4. So it is an action RPG uh, Excellent, fast-paced combat, uh, amazing soundtrack, and I really, really dig it. I'm a huge fan of this series, and uh, I just beat the game uh, last night, uh, actually during my break at work, so that was awesome. Um, Sounds like there were a bunch of folks who, who felt like if this had come out in a month where, say, The Link Between Worlds did not come out, it, it would have been our, our November game of the month. Yeah, absolutely. It's a super, it's a really, really good game. Um the thing about it is that it is arguably, I mean, it's less polished than A Link Between Worlds, but it is still a really, really good action RPG, and they're both very different games. A Link Between Worlds is a lot more focused on uh, very well-constructed puzzle-solving and very focused dungeons, whereas uh, East Celsetta is a lot, a lot more, uh, I don't know, it's a lot more focused on Combat and exploration, because in a Zelda game, I mean, combat is satisfying, but it's it's not really, really fast. Whereas in East Celsetta, you're unleashing all kinds of special moves, you're dodging constantly, um, you're outfitting yourself with new equipment all the time and accessories that do different things. Like, oh, if you uh, block it, like there, there's a couple of cool features. There's a flash guard and a flash dodge. If you block an enemy's attack at, right at the moment that it hits you, you get a flash guard, and so right after, for a few seconds afterwards, you do critical damage with every strike. So it encourages you to understand enemy attack patterns and block right when they hit, rather than just holding down the block button. 
And then flash dodge is the same. If you dodge right at the moment of an enemy's attack, if you've played Bayonetta, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, you get the same kind of effect where time slows down around you. Get you get witch time? Yeah, you get witch time. Nice! So you get to run around really fast and, and hit enemies quickly. So it really encourages you to understand how enemies are attacking you and actually respond appropriately instead of just mash attack, heal, mash attack, heal. And uh, the East series is known for having two things mostly. Um, really, really satisfying combat with awesome pattern-based bosses. Um, they really harken back to the days of Mega Man or any other classic game where you, you know, beating a boss is a challenge because you have to understand how they work. Um, kind of like Dark Souls, you know. I, I actually really enjoy pattern recognition and action-based game bosses. You said so, it, not me. Don't get mad at me. Hey, I'm not mad. <laughs> so, so there's that, and then they're known for having really, really good music. Uh, typically, very guitar-heavy and violin-heavy soundtracks. Hmm. So I reviewed this soundtrack way back at the beginning of this year because we actually at that time didn't know if we were going to get this game over here. Um, and I think it's one of their better, Falcom's better soundtracks. Not their best, but it has some really, really good tracks, um, especially a few towards the end of the game are just, like, insane with their violin and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, it's really, really good. I think that it's it's a little bit less focused than Link Between Worlds, and... It's kind of hard to compare the two because they're both action RPGs, but they do different things very well. And I think I thought Celsetta was uh, an excellent experience overall. Um, my only complaints would be that it ended really, really abruptly, and I felt like the uh, soundtrack wasn't the very best of the series. But it's it's a still excellent, and I'm going to be reviewing it in the next couple of days, so that should be up around the time of this podcast. Is this the one I should get? Steven, uh, Steven, sorry, Derek, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, bud, I love you. Uh, I I love Steven, too, so that's fair. (laughs) Is this the one I should get? Because, like, I'll I'll be honest, like, it's the same feeling I have with the Tales series. You guys speak so highly of it, but I almost don't know where to start. You know what I mean? Like, I'm I'm intimidated to jump into this series because there have been, like, 18 bajillion East games. Yeah, this is um, a lot more accessible, I'd say, because I know that your relationship with JRPGs is, you know, it's... Sometimes you like them, sometimes you don't, and that's fine. I think the E-Series is a lot more, I don't know, it's got, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, there's equilibrium. They're, they're, they're not so polarizing. They're not so difficult to approach. They're, they're more accessible just in terms of, um, they tend to be really focused on raw gameplay, and if you like the gameplay, you can take or leave the other features. Right. Um, it's, it's not like you get, you don't always get a heavy-handed story. East Celsetta does have a heavier story than, than your average East game. It's kind of on par with East 7. Mm-hmm. But but it's got... I mean, the combat is just super satisfying. And if you jump into the game, you will have that... I don't, I don't know how long the intro sequence is. Like 15 minutes or so. 15 to 20 minutes of cutscenes, talking, exposition. And then you get to jump in and fight a bunch of stuff. And if you like the way the fighting is, you will enjoy the rest of the game, undoubtedly. Okay. So okay. this is a really good one to start with, I'd say. Just because... It does have that weird history and the fact that it's a remake or not, you know, but a reimagining of two other games um, since it, it was made with people who had never played either one in mind, I think. And because the East games are all uh, they're technically they're related, you know, like they 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 progress in a linear fashion, but each one is like a standalone episode or like a season of a TV show. So you don't need to know any of the other games to know what's going on. It's cool if you have played the other ones, because in this one in particular, they make a lot of references to things that haven't happened yet. Like, they keep talking about, um, like, if you walk around the town, 
you'll hear NPCs saying like, oh, I hear stuff's going down over in uh, Altago. I wonder what's happening. I hear they've got some stuff with dragons going on over there. And that's a place that uh, Adol doesn't visit until E7. So that's three games later. And that's when he goes and does all the stuff with the five dragons of Altago. So there's a lot of cool allusions to the other games, but you can definitely just jump right in. Okay, that might be it. that might be a game I'll pick up during a uh, holiday break. Yeah, and like I've said, they have the other ones on Steam, so I would really highly suggest starting with either Oath and Felgana or Origin. Those are both great. They're both standalone. Um, Origin, in particular, doesn't even have the main character at all in it, mm-hmm. so you can really just go go in there with absolutely no idea of what's happening. But they're both super good. Okay. They're, it's it's a really accessible series, and I think that um, if you just give it a go, I think you'll like it. I think you'll dig the combat because it's very skill based, and you feel very in control. I'm having a hard time finding it on Steam. They don't just list it as Wise. Yeah, you might have to try it like Wise Y S Oath or Y S. Yeah, Y S Oath. Yeah, yep, there it is. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, it's a series that I'm, I've always been intrigued by ever since I saw it at my local Magic Video as a kid, and uh-huh. I just could not pronounce what it was. But well, that one sucks. If you're thinking of E3, the one for Super Nintendo or Genesis? Uh, I think it was for Nintendo, whichever one that was. Or maybe it was Super Nintendo, and I just can't... Probably, yeah, it's probably the one that, yeah, it's probably Wanderers from East. Okay. I don't know, maybe I'll do that. I mean, my, my Vita got a huge workout with Tactics Ogre, but I, I think, like, I either need to pick up Persona 4, segue into news, oh <laughs> or, uh, or East. Um... Can, can we? Can I just say that I actually heard Derek squeal like a little girl when they finally announced Persona Five? You did. It was like when uh, they announced uh, Kingdom Hearts Three for Steven. You heard his squeal around the around yeah. And the everybody world. heard mine for Dark Souls too. <laughs> like, yeah. So we all, you know, we all got to squeal this year. So that's good. Yeah. No, we really did. But I, uh, yeah. So they they announced a whole lot of Persona. <laughs> like, good God, that was an explosion. So I hear that a lot of people were melting down during this live stream announcement because it was several hours. And they were uh, trolling people. <laughs> yeah, well, good, you know. So, yeah. they were, so Atlas was announced teasing a bunch of Persona stuff, and then they had this live stream. And uh, so I don't remember in which order they announced them. I think the first thing they announced was Persona Q. Yeah, the Shadow ch- of the Labyrinth. Ch- chibi Persona. Yeah, which is a like a an Etrian Odyssey styled game with Persona characters, and they're all chibified. And people were like, "This isn't the announcement I wanted." Um, but that game. Uh, Gameplay wise, I mean, it looks solid to me. Yeah. Do you think you think people are are happier about it now that they know they're getting Persona Five as well? Yes, absolutely. Because the throughout the stream, they they announced that they announced this uh, Persona Four dancing all night. It's like bust the <laughs> move, but with Risei and friends. <laughs> and uh, and then they announced they talked about Persona Four Arena too, and people were like, "I came to the stream for dancing all night. Come on!" And then they asked Persona Five, and everybody exploded. So. So yeah, I think after that announcement came out, everybody was able to chill out a little bit and get, and uh, accept those other announcements. Everybody was able to be happy. Yeah, I for what it's worth, I want all of those games. I love rhythm games, so I'm totally cool with dancing all night. Um, and I love fighting games, even though I'm not awesome at them, so I'm totally cool with more Persona 4 Arena. And uh, I don't really mind. I, th- I think that... Uh, I. I'm not 100% sure how I feel about the art style necessarily of Persona Q, but I watched that initial trailer, and the battles look really fun. So, I mean, I'm definitely in. And if I can put, you know, some of these characters in the same party, it's kind of like a fan service yeah, excitement moment. And then Persona 5, we got the horrible English of... You what are slave. Want emancipation? Uh, 
but yeah, I, I think we can expect that to be fairly quick. I mean, uh, the turnover from Persona 4 wasn't too bad. It was just a couple of months before we got it in the States. So I think that they'll... I think they realize that that is kind of a juggernaut over here. Like, it's very well loved. I think we'll get yeah. it fast. Um, and I'm super excited. I want to see where they go with it. I want, I want like, new cast of characters. I, I like the fact that it looks like it's going to be red. It looks like it's going to be red. I like red. That's cool. We went blue, yellow, red. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Um... And, you know, I think it's time for another one. We've had a really long yeah. cool-off since Persona 4, and I think we're all ready to have that kind of experience again. And, mm-hmm. you know, hats off to Atlas. Uh, some complaints online, um, you know, the, I don't care that it's on PS3. Bring it on. Yeah, that's fine. I would like to see it on Vita as well, you know? Uh, yeah. I don't think... I think there's very little chance of that actually happening, maybe down the road. Um, but it, you know... Excited to see it, and that means that my PlayStation 3 will still be plugged in. They said winter of 2014, so that could be probably like December next year, I'd say, in Japan. Yeah, yeah. so. Yep. Probably a couple months after for us, but it's coming, and I don't think there's any possible way it could not make it to the U.S. Oh, yeah, I think we're going to get it. I think we're going to get it. Um, there was also, like, because of all the, the Sega acquisition of Atlas stuff, people started talking, like, Sega executives saying, oh, yeah, Atlas now has access to our uh, to our catalog of games if they want to work on something. Fantasy Star, now. Official Please. Fantasy Star. God. Wait, do it now. Yeah. Good I God. Traditional Fantasy, Fantasy Star. Five? Please. Let, let's, let's do this. It doesn't even... You, do it on 3DS. Do it on Vita. Do it on a freaking toaster for all I care. Make this no. game. Do it. I I am against toaster games. I'm no. done. No. The last toaster game I played really burned me. <laughs> oh, oh. ladies and gentlemen, that went on the spot. That like that was that was just that was awful. That was awful. That was oh, awful. God, it was awful. <laughs> all right, so we're excited about all those things. You ready yep. to move to the next? Yep. Let's keep going. Okay, so um, Namco Bandai opened a teaser site for the next Tales of game. It's set to be revealed on the 12th, which is four days from this recording, and it may actually have been revealed by the time we post this podcast. I don't know. but the next, So it's going to be the next official Tales game. Um, the most likely scenario is that it's going to be Tales of Zestiria, which is a silly name, but, you know, JRPG names, it's fine. Uh, we don't know yet. But, yeah, so there's going to be an official new Tales, and it will probably be for PS3 just based on the fact that uh, a recent interview with uh, Hideo Baba from the Tales team, I guess he's the the lead, I, I don't remember what his official title is, but he was saying that he wants, they, they want to continue making the Tales games for the platforms that the most people can experience them on, so they're not ready to move on to the PS4 yet, as far as I'm aware, so it'll probably be a PS3 game. I like Tales, I'm excited, that's cool. Uh, Bravely Default. Uh, officially had a sequel announced a couple days ago, and uh, it is actually called Bravely Second. So, which is silly. Uh, but Bravely Default just came out in Europe, and I'm hearing nothing but positive things, and I cannot wait for it to come out here to the U.S. But uh, it's good to know that Bravely Second is a thing, and that it will be for 3DS. And uh, assuming this one does well over here, which I think it will, because there's a lot of hype. Um, I'm I excited think, for it. We should get it. Yeah, I mean, they they just released a launch trailer for the the European version, and I was like, holy crap! It was really hype. It uses some of the because the music is done by Revo, so it's really bombastic, like almost operatic, over the top stuff. And they used one of the best songs from the soundtrack in that trailer, and I was just like, wow. So, um. What was I going to say? You knocked it out of my head. Oh, there it was. Um, so this is... Uh, people talk about how it's the spiritual successor to Four Warriors of Light. 
I didn't play that. Was that good? I love that game, but it's kind of polarizing. Okay, what was polarizing about just that it was like a simple um, kind of old school yeah, RPG? It's, very, it's almost like it feels almost like a Nintendo game in 3D in that you don't get a lot of direction necessarily. And in, in sometimes, I mean, it's very it's very old school in design. Like there is a world map, and there are towns where you buy new equipment, and it's kind of I wouldn't say it's bare bones, but it's definitely a lot less uh, meaty than a lot of RPGs that we're used to, and it it has this weird mechanic with targeting that makes perfect sense if you understand how it works, but you don't get to actually choose what you're targeting in battle. Like, it's based on whatever job your character is. So mm. if you're an archer, your attacks will always target the back line of enemies. Oh. If you're a warrior, it will always target the enemy in the front. So it's kind of weird because you just hit attack and it's like, oh, I, I didn't get to choose my target, what's going on? But if you set up your party, you know, if you, it's part of the strategy in... in in battle is setting up your party in a certain way that you know which enemy you're going to target with which attack. So, but yeah, I think it's really good, and uh, I love the soundtrack to it. It's very chiptune, and it feels like a soundtrack that is actually from a lost NES SNES game. Um, I think it's super cool, but it's uh, some people were turned off by it. I was going to say a lot. I don't know, but uh, this, from what I've heard, is a lot more accessible, Bravely Default, and better also. So. Okay, I'll, I'll I'll give it a try. It's one of those, it's one of those games that like bravely. Uh, God, the 3DS would just became my system of choice this year, and like I'm really excited to play that. I'd like to review it for the site. You know, I'm I'm in the, the mood for an old school RPG, and you know, I, I just to just to preview the Game of the Year awards a little bit uh, again. Um, I put down as my biggest disappointment, and I, I know I'm probably gonna get some flack. Because a couple of guys on site actually put it down as their number one game, but but Nino Kuni, like Nino Kuni, really just didn't do it for me. Like I just could not get into that combat. I was totally into the world. I was ready to love that game. I love the art style. I love the world. I love the voice acting. But man, I just could not get into that combat system. And I just I hope that I haven't been completely turned off of the JRPG. You know what I mean? Like that no. was just a, a a bump in the road. And Bravely Default will be a game that I really enjoy. Yeah, I I think it will be. I think that Bravely Default just looks incredibly solid and well put together. And based on the fact that that in the U.S. and Europe we're getting Bravely Default for the sequel, which is there, which is a weird name, but again, JRPG names. Uh, they made a ton of of small tweaks under the hood. I if I could be misremembering, but I think I read that they made two hundred or more just really small tweaks here and there, like. Some, some of them are more substantial, like you can fast-forward through battles, which is cool if you're grinding. Um, you can use the L button to confirm in addition to the A button. So, like, if you're just if you're grinding and you want to just play with one hand. Um, adjustments of item prices in shops and j- lots of little, little things, like adjustments to the calculations of damage or uh, the menus look a little bit better. So they really took their time and they listened to fan feedback and they made a lot of changes so it just seems like a really well-constructed game in terms of, like, none of the mechanics feel sloppy or, you know, it's got it's got really understandable turn-based battles. You know what you're going to do in each battle if you strategize. I mean, I haven't played it, but I think it looks like the, the quintessential JRPG, and uh, it feels like a PS1 Final Fantasy title in terms of its battle system and stuff. So I'm super stoked for it. Cool. And what else also on Also on the, the games of the year, you know, don't forget, at least as of uh, this recording, and I think when we get this posted, voting for uh, Reader's Choice. 
is ah, going yes. on. Don't forget to uh, go out and vote for that, people who are listening. Agreed. Please do. Agreed. Yeah, we, if you don't see it on the uh, the very front of the page, you can see it on our little sidebar. It should be under the featured content. You'll see a button for reader's choice that's blue and orange. Or you can look under the features tab on the main page and get to that so you can get your vote in. Please do. It's always fun for us to see what the readers think. Good lord. Persona 4 Portable is 16 bucks on Amazon right now. I know. Buy it. Yeah, I kind of got to. Remember, remember what I said. It's like one of the greatest video games I have ever played in my entire life. Wow. I, I, I had never, my score. I'd never played a, a Persona game really until uh, Persona 4 Golden. And you guys had talked so much about, oh, this game is amazing. You know, it's the best thing ever. And I was like, oh, sure. Uh, I'm going to play it. And it's going to be like, okay, this is good. But no, seriously, it is a an amazing game uh, all around. Every, everything about it. I mean, I'm not saying it's completely flawless, but every aspect of it, the story, the gameplay, the everything is good. Everything. <laughs> everything. Is... The everything is good. The everything yes. is good. What did you like about that game the best? Well, I liked the everything. The everything. Yeah. <laughs> so go buy the game. More now news, Derek? To... Yes, a few more pieces. Uh, last night at the VGX Awards, Telltale Games officially announced two new adventure games. Holy crap! Uh, <laughs> game of Thrones, which is the big one. Oh my god, I am so stoked. Like, there, if it is, I, uh, okay, all right. Calm down, calm down, breath, calm down. Deep breath. What I really want to see is I want it to be all about character interaction, and I think that's what they're going to do. Like, all about backstabbing and betrayal, and I am just so, bring it on. And we know that, that Telltale Games aren't afraid to uh, kill characters off in their games. So, yep. I mean, it's Game of Thrones, so... Mm-hmm. You could very well be playing as people that die frequently. The only thing that could be worrisome is because the characters are so established in that world, it could kind of play like the Godfather video game where like, hey, you're the guy who put the horse's head in the bed. And it's like, you're doing the side stuff that isn't really interesting. And so that's that's the only thing that has me a little worried. Like, I doubt that you're going to kill Tyrion Lannister, but... You know, how, how do you make it so that you have impactful choices with these iconic characters at this point while still maintaining a gamey quality? I think it's going to be a challenge, but, uh, you know, those guys are up up to it. Let's let's do this. Absolutely. Have, yeah. have you seen the, um, the there's a couple of books called Legends. Uh, they're written by a bunch of different authors. They write short novels set in their worlds. And um, George R. R. Martin, for, for both of those books, wrote... Uh, one that was set in the Game of Thrones and the, the Song of Ice and Fire world. Mm-hmm. But it's, if I remember correctly, a few hundred years before the the main books. So you have that same feel, but not the same characters. And I, I wonder if, because of exactly what you're saying, it might not be better for them to set the game, you know, a few, you know, in, in one of those older stories that he's written or some other time, basically. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I would agree, and I, I think that they—that's one of the reasons why The Walking Dead was so awesome because they—they they tangentially touched on things, but they told their own story. Yeah. And I think that's really important. As long as you have the themes down, I mean, it would be amazing to hear that Martin helped write it, for example. Mm-hmm. And that would add a lot of credence to what they're doing. And then the other game was kind of like, what? Yeah, Tales from the Borderlands, um, which I can see being really cool. I. You know, I tried to play Borderlands 1, and uh, I just get, I get like, not motion sickness, but I get headaches from first-person shooters, which is a bummer, um, because I really like the uh, the loot and everything in Borderlands 1, and I'd love to get Borderlands 2 and, and actually give it a, a really good go. 
because I rented it and played a few hours of it and thought it was cool. But um, it's not it's not a universe I, I saw them making a, an adventure game out of. But it's cool. Like it's an interesting. I, I like the whole weird planet with mysterious artifacts vibe and all that. So I mean, it could be cool. I I'll give it a go. I yeah. might end up playing it before I play Borderlands Two, like giving that a really good try. But sure, why not? I, I was at the gym the other day. Listening to a lot of podcasts. Well, get my swole on. I'm actually just trying not to be fat anymore. Uh, and people yeah. were kind of talking about Telltale uh, games, and I remembered like everybody really bashed uh, Jurassic Park. Like, what was wrong with that game compared to the other Telltale games? I didn't play it, but I didn't play it either. No, Maybe nobody. Uh, Steven's not here. And I think Steven said the Back to the Future was good but flawed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I really enjoyed Back to the Future. I played that uh, a little while after it came out. And, and yeah, I, I would say it's not perfect, but it was really fun to, to go, as a fan of the movies, to go be in that world and, you know, play through with those characters who you do know, but also play through with some other characters that you don't know. So it, if you haven't played it, it's definitely worth playing. It seems like at some point between Back to the Future and... The Walking Dead, Telltale really discovered their secret sauce. Whatever they they figured out, um, they are now really, really good at making these kinds of games. And the bar has been set really high. So I just hope that that these games continue to deliver um, because they've got. I mean, they've got a full plate right now. They're, they're working on The Wolf Among Us season. Uh, episode one is out. Episode two is about to come out. Uh, Walking Dead season two, and then also now they've got Game of Thrones and Tales from the Borderlands, and all that's supposed to be coming out this upcoming year. Yeah, and, uh, season two of Walking Dead starts uh, next week. Well, yep. I'm uh, sorry, on the 17th. Mm-hmm. Oh, for the, the game? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. excellent. Looks Good cool. Uh, and then what we didn't get at the VGX, and I, I really thought we were going to get it. There, Everybody was kind of the victim of a massive Fallout 4 hoax mm-hmm. over yeah. the course of like a month, and we did not get an announcement. I think maybe that's why I think the VGX was kind of disappointing, was we didn't have that like... Skyrim or Uncharted 3 or Dark Souls 2, we didn't have a really big announcement. It was kind of just like next-gen Tomb Raider, and you're like, oh, all right. Which like, is which is I okay. Mean, I mean, we already have next-gen next-gen Tomb Raider. It's called the PC. Yeah, uh, I was a little... Yeah, I really thought we were going to get a Fallout 4 announcement, and they actually... Bethesda came right out and said, yeah, we're not announcing anything, like, 48 hours beforehand. Really disappointing. Like... I really mm-hmm. like Fallout. Uh, Fallout Three. I put a lot of time into it. Yeah, I was. I'm a latecomer to the Fallout series, but I really enjoyed Fallout Three. So I, I really look forward to Fallout Four. I wish they would have I, announced it. I hope they're working on it. I think they are, and I, yeah. I think that the reason I like Fallout more than Skyrim is like I, I just think those mechanics work a little bit better. They're they're more focused. They're more about progressing down a certain path to make your character play the way you really want to. Whereas Skyrim. Skyrim beats the crap out of you if you try to go in too many directions and you don't specialize. Like you have to have mental discipline, and I just I just like the sci-fi post-apocalyptic setting as well. Yeah, yep. I just think it's a more interesting world to explore. So yeah, it it has problems, but Fallout Three is still a very playable game, and I I really like that. So I mean, it plays like a traditional RPG in a lot of ways. Although there's never really a reason to shoot at anything other than the head. I really hope that they they do something with that in the next one. Yeah, like that well, that was kind of lame. If you are up against somebody who you know you're not going to take out in maybe one shot, it can be useful to, say, shoot them in the arm and knock their uh, gun out of their hand. Or 
depending on the enemy, shoot him in the leg and slow him down. But yeah, yeah. anybody who you have a, a reasonable chance of killing in your one round or, you know, within one shot at bats, there's no reason to do anything but that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that always that always seemed like a game design that it never really came about the way it could. And I, I hope that they do like, you know, what if a guy was running at you with a grenade and you could shoot him in the hand and they drop the grenade and it would go off. Mm-hmm. Like you can put a grenade into people's pants. Why can't you do that in that game? I don't know. I, don't know. I ask myself that question every day in real life. Just thinking this stuff through. Just thinking this yep. one, this stuff through. Yep. Well, uh, that wraps up news for the day. I just wanted to also uh, remind you guys, our listeners, we did put out a couple of pretty big features earlier this month. We re- released our uh, RPG Fans Top 20 DS Games feature, which was really fun to put together. It was a compliment to the Top 20 PSP RPGs that we did uh, last month. or Yeah, it was last month, I think. Maybe the month before. I think so. But uh, yeah, so we had a lot of fun um, making that list, and uh, I'm sure some people disagree with some of those choices, which is fine. No. That's the point, you know? Not the internet. Opinions. But um, but I think overall, in that list of top 20 games, regardless of their placement, you will find nothing but quality RPGs that are worth your time. Yeah. So definitely give that a check out. Uh, you can find that under the Features tab on the top navigation bar on the site, because I think it's already slipped out of our sidebar at this point. Yeah. Um, so you can find that. And then we also did a really cool collaboration with Louder um, for the Game Music Festival. We interviewed several musicians and posted a few uh, soundtrack reviews related to the content that's being put out, or that was put out, rather, during last weekend's festival. So you can find that in the same place. Um, definitely give it a check out because we're always working on the music section and trying to uh, expand our coverage and talk to cool new people. So give that a check out as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also wanted to give some shout-outs. Derek said on the last podcast that if people gave us some reviews on iTunes, we would give some shout-outs. So here we go. Uh, Sharpest Bread. Sharpest Bread. I thought it was Sharpest Beard at first. Sharpest Bread. Thank you very much for the kind words. I'm always looking forward to the next episode. Thank you, sir. We also have B234567A. Oh, man. I love that guy. Awesome. Uh, if you're looking for a bi-weekly Dark Souls podcast, look no further. I appreciate that. The show consists of 90% Dark Boys fanboyism, 7% Final Fantasy 13 bashing, and 3% other. In all honesty, That's though. That's not true. In all honesty, though, a group of guys that know and love their RPGs, and I enjoy it. Appreciate the kind words. Uh, Vittorio Vegas, thank you very much for the kind words. One of my favorite podcasts. It's always good to find people who share the taste you do and something you like. Thank you very much. Uh, good podcast from Kay Sunstar. Uh, she she was kind of mad at me for uh, slamming uh, Nino Cooney, and she was like, well, wait a minute. You guys gave it a 90 on the site. Well, we have different opinions, and that's yep. that's what happens there. And then last one, Andy Master 01 being a longtime listener to the podcast, this was due excellent podcast the best one about our rpgs oh thank you so much thank you so if you'd like some more shout outs always give us reviews and uh now i'm i'm just blatantly saying that i will give shout outs now to try I'm to get sure. some Why more not? reviews i mean you know whenever we get those reviews again we say this but it helps us become more visible on the site and it gives all of us the warm fuzzies you know anytime really you guys give us any piece of feedback whether it's a review on itunes an email a post on the forums we read those. We are human beings who read those things and find joy in them. Yeah, it really, it does make me feel really good. I remember when we first started, I wasn't even sure if anybody was listening. So, like, the first 
kind words that we got on iTunes. Like, I just kind of sat back and was like, aww, and felt really yeah. good. And then somebody also, gave us a one, and I was really upset. No, I'm just well, that person is a bad person. Oh, no, no, no. People are allowed to have opinions. That's No, they're not. Yeah, they are. <laughs> Only they are. certain opinions. Only certain, certain opinions. Yes. But, so, and I also did want to say that uh, Mike, our graphic designer, did create some snazzy new album art for us uh, on iTunes for both Random and Rhythm. Yes, and he did. So those look very classy. They're very cool for the new year. They definitely do. And uh, as always, thank you for listening to the podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes. Send us some kind words, as Derek was saying. I wanted to apologize that it took so long for us to get another episode up. I think we were all playing too much Zelda, and we just got distracted. So we're going to... Yep, we've all been really busy. You know, lots of things going on in people's lives and, you know... Grad school and college applications and job applications is always busy around here, but we're going to try to get a little bit better about uh, putting shows out. And um, thanks again for listening. If you stay tuned right now, we should have an interview with Chris and Tyler, who are working on an upcoming indie game called Darkest Dungeon. So be sure to give that a listen. And thanks again for listening to the show. We'll see you all later. Hello and welcome to another one of our developer interview series for Random Encounter. This is your host, Rob Steinman, and I'm joined today by the lovely Stephen Meyerink. Hello! And we have two guys from Red Hook Games here to talk about the upcoming indie RPG Darkest Dungeon. We have Chris Barasa. How's it going? And Tyler Sigmund. Hello, hello. And they're here to talk about a game that is apparently going to both scare the crap out of you, drive you insane, and make you feel the dungeon crawlers are the living embodiment of hell. And that was the sound of the audience going, oh, okay, that's why Rob is interested in it. Yep, that, that, that's pretty much the case. So, oh, uh, you summed it up. <laughs> so, tell, so tell us a little bit about the game, just to kind of give the viewers, uh, and viewers, uh, already off to a great start, to kind of give the listeners a little bit of an impression of what you guys are going for, some of the inspirations. What are you guys trying to achieve with this game? Um, well, creatively, uh, what we want to do is just take, take a look at our beloved dungeon crawling genre through a bit of a different lens. So instead of, you know, I- encouraging a, a gear grind and, and sort of a, a min max kind of thing, um, which I love, by the way, I'm not, I'm not downing on any of those kinds of games. I'm a huge fan, but we thought we could maybe take a look at the dungeon crawling genre, um, from the perspective of the people who are actually doing the dungeon crawling and what it would actually be like to sort of wait around in the dark and run out of food and get sick and get sick of each other and kind of the, the bickering that might arise by virtue of how stressful these situations would actually be. Um, so, we, you know, that's kind of where we started from. Um, movies like Aliens are probably a really good example where some of the guys just lose their minds and, you know, the unlikely hero Ripley actually steals herself and becomes a total badass. Um, so that sort of team dynamic and, and interplay were kind of where we started with the game. Yeah, I think uh, you know we both play a lot of games. And we love the genre, but as creators, I think there's you don't just want to be a me too. I think and um, Chris came up with this idea that you know grabbed me right away, which was just yeah, what would it be like for the characters? And so you know we we found it really easy to just kind of start relating stories from either you know either like your role playing past or gaming or movies and things like that. And we realized that yeah, no one's like how awful it really would be just going into endless dungeon after dungeon and and the idea that a character with one hit points is going to fight, you know, just as hard as though they had a hundred. And, and uh, it's kind of fun to start thinking about, 
Um, you know, war movies have done this pretty well where you might have someone who's really good, but they get shell shocked. And, um, and that's a real consideration. And so gameplay ideas started to come out of that of what it might be like to manage the party in that situation. Interesting. That's, I guess that's sort of like, if you think of like the old Baldur's Gate games where like, you know, obviously this seems like it's on a different scale, but you have like the characters, you make a choice, they don't agree with it. Or if like their health gets low, they run away and you know, you lose control of them. So I guess it's not an extension of that, but it seems like it's in a similar vein, but more. Yeah, definitely. I think like, um, for me, a big moment was playing, I think it was Ultima six. And like, I would just burst into people's houses and like isometrically rob them blind. And then that you had the bard that was with you and he would always throw these temper tantrums and like run away and pout on the other <laughs> side of the city. And, and I hated it, you know, at, at the time. And, and looking back, I, it was such a profound like gaming memory. I sound like such a nerd, but it, it stuck with me. And that sort of indirect control is something that we're trying to really harness. So your, your guys in the party are going to get stressed. They're going to get weird with each other. They're, you know, they're going to refuse to eat. They're going to give up hope. They're going to get inspired. They're going to overachieve. So we're trying to capture all that sort of like human drama and kind of gamify it a little bit, you know? It seems like you're trying to kind of embrace the chaos that comes out of being people. Oh, yeah. 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 If you look at, um, there's a certain like, you know, our sort of separation when you play a traditional RPG, when you realize that they're just pieces on the chessboard that you're moving around, right? The pawn, the pawn never complains if you sacrifice it, right? But um, <laughs> what if, you know? What if you cared a Better little not. bit more? And you know, games like XCOM have done this really well, where you might actually get attached to a character, and you know that I've got to run somebody up to the door and open it, and there might be an alien on the other side just ready to shoot, um, but somebody's got to do it. And uh, when you start bringing in the feeling of tangible loss, I think then that can get to, to be a really interesting moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something that Stephen and I kind of argue about back and forth. You know, it, it sounds really, uh, it sounds re- like you guys are really going for this awesome vision. Um, but one of the things that Stephen and I conflict on sometimes is sometimes randomness can really irritate me i'm the type of player where i can feel like oh my god i had a one percent chance to miss and i missed three times in a row and i'm kind of a math guy and i sit down and do the math and go wow that's kind of that's kind of terrible how do you make the randomness a fun element without being a detriment i think we've all been there with an XCOM game where like our one soldier panics at the absolute worst time. See, uh, now, sorry. And Steven sorry. loves it. Steven loves see, it. See, that's I the thing it. is, I, I, I did want to offer a counter to that is where I see that chaos as part of where the fun comes from is if it behaves predictably every single time, then there's no challenge to it. It's simple a mat- simply a matter of, oh, you know, what is the perfect strategy for this? Whereas, you know, someone goes nuts and runs away. You're like, uh, all right, now what? Yeah, I think our game is... Uh is about rolling with punches. Um, and it tests the player's ability to manage as opposed to their ability to direct. Uh, I think that's an important kind of like uh, consideration, I, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. Philosophically, and Tyler can, can really run with this, with this question, but we always said to, to each other, um, no matter how bad it gets, there's a back door. So you get bitten by a rabid hound, your guy gets sick, he's running out of health, He's vomiting on everyone. He's stressing everyone out. No one wants to heal him. Now you've got a death knight. Like he's upgraded and he's basically gone through the gateway of death and now he's extra powerful. So we're trying to make it palatable to sustain a certain amount of unpredictability and chaos by making sure that, you know, philosophically the game always gives you that sort of 
just pinpoint light at the end of the tunnel in unexpected ways. Interesting. Yeah, I think um, part of it is conditioning. And we fully admit that there are players out there that probably won't enjoy Darkest Dungeon. Uh, we're definitely not trying to be the, you know, appeal to everybody, coddle you through type of thing. Um, you know, and, and obviously games like Dark Souls have shown that people are kind of up for a challenge as long as they perceive it to be fair. Um, so some of the things we're doing, like we admit there are, yeah, there's a lot of random checks that go on. And like you you mentioned, like sometimes, you know, like you can tell somebody, hey, there's a 10% chance you're going to miss. And then they miss and they say, oh, there's games, you know, out to get me. or the <laughs> And I think uh, Sid Meier had a great, we were just talking about this today, I think. Uh, Sid Meier right. has, has talked about some in development of civilization that way where they've actually had to skew their random number generator just based on people's perception. Um, but I think sometimes a different player uh, might you know, might say be playing Civ and might be playing our game. I mean, the point is you don't have direct control of everything. So um, Chris was kind of alluding to there's there's a lot of good things that can happen out of bad things. Like one of the, one of the ways to make it more palatable, we think, is that really no character is going to be baggage free. Every character is going to develop weird quirks and and um, things that define them, and nobody's going to be pristine. And so you you kind of get conditioned out of this idea that. You know, some people like I know, like, you know, when you play an RPG, you want to make sure I'm always at perfect hit points and nothing's wrong and I got just the right gear and everything's just good. And if I don't, I reload the save game. So one thing we're doing is um, a there is no save game. It saves as you go. So you quickly learn that there's a permanence about your actions. And that's that's. Um, but the other thing is you are in control of some of the risks that you take. So risk reward is, is a big thing. But let's say you're in a situation and you realize, oh, this battle's going against me and um, you know, I may lose one I may lose the whole party or one of my favorite characters or whatever. Uh, there's always a little bit of choice on you of how far do you push it. Maybe you could run away. Maybe you could run out of the whole dungeon and abandon this quest or, you know, that sorts of thing. So if you keep pushing yourself to a point where say you get in a party wipe situation. Although it's there's, for example, a chance that it was uh, um, just bad luck. Most of the time, you're going to be able to look back and say, "Oops, you know, I kind of, yeah, I kind of messed up there, and I probably pushed too far there, and I didn't bring enough food, and even though this guy barked that he was getting scared, I didn't listen, and I pushed him forward, and then these bad things happen." So I think it's it's giving the player some choice over how they get in these situations that that helps mitigate it. So if they choose to take the risk. Yeah, everybody has their hands dirty, like Tyler said. Every every character is going to have things that are not so great about them. That's that's part of the game. That's entry level. Um, See that? So it, once you accept that and you know that nobody's perfect, it, I think it sets the tone for the game really nicely. So you're like, okay, everything is about rolling with the punches. My, my party is flawed. My heroes are flawed. They're capable of great stuff, but they're also kind of a little pre-broken. Let's, let's kind of see how this plays out. Mm-hmm. I, that I, strikes me as kind of a more intense version of the the random nature of Rogue Legacy, where you know you'll get a character that sees everything upside down, and you just gotta kind of go with it. Well, I th- I think there's also this. I, I really like what you guys talked about um, in terms of rolling with the punches and that feeling of I pushed myself too far. I think that that's the best kind of difficulty that I'm playing in games. Uh, one of the games that we actually talked about earlier on this episode was uh, State of Decay which is a game that you can really screw yourself up. And it, it always comes back to, oh, I put myself out there. I was the one who didn't prepare, who didn't get exactly. enough health, who spent I mean, we too were, much time. Yeah, we were joking about Dark Souls before we started recording. And, and yeah, I, I broke a controller playing, playing Dark Souls, but it was my fault. And it was my fault that the, I broke the controller too. 
you, you know, like the it, timing it was not faulty and stuff. Workmanship. Is, no, it, it certainly wasn't Sony's fault. Um, but the timing is so elegant in that in that game. The, the combat I found to just be so incredibly tight that when you push it, you know the minute you press the button that you tried to get in one too many attacks and that you're about to eat it. You yes. know it. Like it just in your muscles know it. Your cells know it. So, you know, by by extension, we want to try and bring that into into this strategic RPG genre where, you know, like Tyler's saying, you know, oh, we're, we're, all my guys are getting hungry. I'm low on food. You know, hell with it. It's just one more room. What's the problem? And, and then that room is, is your demise. But it was your decision as, as a leader and, and manager of this group. Yeah. And you're, you're kind of um, weighing that against, you know, you can be Mr. Freddy Cat and Mr. Careful the whole time too. You know, like some players are more conserved by nature and, and that's okay too. But you might be sacrificing the rate at which you progress. You know, like if you take some more risks, uh, we've got some cool mechanics in the game. Like, for example, dealing with light and dark, which um, Chris can talk about. But but uh, there are situations where we're going to encourage you to take risk and we're going to reward you and we're going to hang the dangle the carrot out there, um, you know, to make you make that decision. And if you want to play super safe and make sure that, you know, every time your favorite uh, highwayman gets in the littlest bit of danger, you run out of the dungeon. I mean, you can kind of do that, but it's also you're not going to progress as fast. So there's a cost, you know, um, and and so weighing that is, I think, a big part of the experience. Excellent. So uh, to to sort of go backwards a little bit, I was actually curious. Um, so do you guys do you guys know each other? Like, how did uh, the the project get started? Like, are you guys friends in real life that you met and then wanted to work on a project, or and then like did the team get bigger from there? Or you know, what what are you working with exactly? Uh, well, Tyler and I worked together um, back at a company called Backbone. Um, we worked on a couple of projects there together and kind of got along, and then hung out outside of work and always sort of talked about doing something together but didn't didn't backbone do the fantasy star port for game boy advance they they very well may have they did a lot of uh like we were with the vancouver office which previous to backbone was called digital eclipse and they've done a lot of uh, gbas also a lot of ah ports. yes and, Tons of um, yeah and then the, as a company there's also an emeryville california office and they did a lot of stuff too but um yeah we met there and then became friends and have kind of, you know, we're, we're friends in the industry, but we're, we're friends also. And we've been at all these different, you know. Like friends for realsies. <laughs> yeah, friends for realsies. Friends for um, Although Darkest Dungeon, I'm sure, may, uh, you know, we'll probably hate each other by the end. But so far, so good. But that's um, fair. But, we, we trade our friendship for a game. I think that's. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we took the risk. We could have backed out of the room. But in we go. And the friendship's the casualty. Yeah, um, I'd be willing to trade Rob if it got me a good game. You know, no offense, Rob. There you yeah, go. Burn, yeah, burn in hell, Stephen. But the, <laughs> the friendship, you know, the interesting thing is like we've done all these other things in the industry because, I mean, I think when we left Backbone was like 2006 or seven. We both left within a week of each other for completely different uh, reasons. Um, and, you know, we've we've we're always, you know, talking about games and talking about our various adventures in the industry. And we we dabbled in a couple other projects on the side that we, you know, we're trying to do together, like a web comic, some other stuff that never, never really came out because we're always so busy. And we knew that uh, we wanted to, we felt our talents combined really well, aside from the, uh, the friendship. I mean, Chris is an incredible artist and um, I can't even draw that Google of his, uh, or that doodle of his face on, on the Skype right now. <laughs> um, and, and uh, we knew that the skills lined up, but also just, we saw eye to eye on, I think, a lot of things. So we really wanted to work together. Is that Chris's art style that you guys are using in the game? 
Yes. Holy crap, dude. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like this straight out of my nightmares, but still has like this kind of cartoony vibe. Like, I love it. It's, it's, oh, I've glad. never yeah, seen thanks. anything like it. Is, is that yeah, what I made mean, you guys? Uh, is is that art design what made you guys decide to go with the kind of side scrolling perspective like to sort of really showcase that style of art is or is that like was that just sort of a decision you made in parallel uh they were two different decisions i mean the art style is is really graphic and you know dark obviously I, we wanted this sort of single source everybody's coming out of the black um mike mignola guy davis kind of vibe um so that was sort of one set of decisions. And then the side scrolling thing was really because, um, we wanted to try to present the game a little bit differently since we're philosophically taking a different slant on dungeon crawlers. We didn't feel like an ISO perspective really, um, lent itself to identifying with your characters. If you're looking at the tops of their heads and their bald spots, um, well, they're heroes. They wouldn't have bald spots. They have luxurious manes of golden hair, but, um, it's uh, it's just a little bit easier to kind of get to know the artwork and, and the characters themselves if you're kind of looking at them. And we just felt it was a bit more of an intimate kind of um, camera angle, I guess. Interesting. Yeah. So, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, um, and it was we experimented with a lot of ideas through the kind of germination phase of the game and a lot of ideas across the board, not just about that. And that was one that, you know... Um, it was fun to think about things that hadn't been done because, again, you know, I think it's easy to fall into a, a Me Too situation where you say, oh, I want to be like Zelda, but just a little bit better. And, you know, there's a lot of games that are trying to do that and, you know, with varying degrees of success. And going into such an old genre, you know, like, you know, people have been playing, you know, computer RPGs since the invention of the computer practically. So, you know, we definitely wanted to bring in some new things. And I think Chris came up with the idea of the side on it. And after we explored it for a while, we realized that there's some pretty awesome mechanics linked in. But yeah, I know that, um, interestingly enough, I think the, the art style is completely a different consideration. And it's not even, Chris, I, I don't know, I wouldn't even say like, you don't really have one style, which I think is a really interesting part. You really created a style for this game that you know, I know just as as someone who just likes the look of the art um, helps us really stand out and look cool. And it's excite it makes it so much easier to get excited about the game looking at it. Yeah, one piece of the artwork that I that really hooked me was I was just plumbing the site when we first got linked to it, and there's that piece of artwork that's kind of orange and black, and it shows the sort of rundown looks like a like a keep or something on top of a hill. That yeah, uh, this is going to sound silly, but as a kid, I really loved the book Mickey Mouse and the Haunted House. And the nice. front cover of that book looks really similar to that haunted house. So I saw that and I go, oh man, that just, it gives me this vibe of just like, you know, haunted, creepy, you know, plumbing a dungeon for some reason. I, random connection, but that, that was the vibe I got from it. Yeah, that's what we want to do. Like, I want it to feel old, dirty, hand drawn, imperfect. You know, the HUD is just me drawing like boxes around menus. Like, everything should kind of feel like you're looking at like an illuminated manuscript or. It's just old, you know, like a woodcut or, you know, we just want the whole game to feel like old and really rooted in that that time period that it that it sort of represents. Rough hewn and. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because the game is I mean, the, the art style is an extension of the game design, really. Um, so so it's it's hard edges because the gameplay is hard and uncompromising and it's it's black everywhere because darkness is a big consideration when you're when you're down in the dungeon. You're it's a big gameplay consideration. Um 
So we wanted to make sure that we had an art style that really spoke to and enhanced our game design choices as opposed to just something that was slapped on. Like, hey, it's anime and fun. Check it out. But it's also super dark, you know. Um, <laughs> so you, you, wanted them, make... you wanted them tied together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that the best games, the ones that I look up to, um, certainly do that. Um, and so I'm just trying to follow in the footsteps of my favorite, you know, titles. Um. You guys released one screenshot for the game, uh, which that was a, that was another thing that I like looked at and went, "This looks awesome." And you get, you were talking about the menu yeah. design. Um, are the characters randomly generated? I couldn't really get a feel from that screenshot, but it looked like you know you, you have your character classes. Do you get to select at the start of when you start up a game, or is it just random? Like you could end up with a bunch of like healers instead of actual fighters. Or like you know, with people dying, you know, do you do you kind of just have to keep hiring more people or something? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I can answer that one. That, yeah, it's, go for it. A critical part of this game, I think, which differs a little bit from. Even some of the, say, the classic games that are inspiration is that you're managing a roster of heroes. And I think that goes to the earlier question about kind of, you know, how much tolerance will you have for bad stuff happening? It's a little more analogous to, say, XCOM, where um, you're going to have your favorite guys and you're going to have, you know, guys that you're really trying to shepherd through and, and you really care about losing. But you're managing a roster. Um, and so... So your party, um, you, you go on a series of smaller quests. Like each quest is not a giant experience. You, you go down in a dungeon and you kind of go after the quest goal and get out. Um, and you're putting the party together for each of those quests. And so if you imagine yourself as kind of a squad leader or something, um, you might be think you you know, you might realize that oh shoot the crusader you know my crusader Joe or whatever um, is still pretty damn stressed out after the last mission. Some rough stuff went down and he is not ready to go back down. So time to put someone else in, in his place. And you might have a, you know, a B crusader that you want to send down, or you might not have another crusader. You might have to send another tank class down, for example, or, you know, there's a lot of party construction there that people could do interesting things. You'd be like, what happens if we, you know, send a, a team of bards down, you know, it's a, can they survive this whole thing? Um, and we want to encourage a lot of that experimentation, but, uh, so the whole random, I, I guess the, the the answer to the initial question is that you're managing a roster of heroes which become available through a variety of different game actions. But at its simplest, sometimes you got to recruit more, and um, you know depending on who's available at that time, you kind of make some choices. So you won't always be able to get, say, another Crusader right that moment if you need one, but eventually you will be able to. Mm -hmm. Is they there? Sort of, um... Oh, go ahead, oh, Chris. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Go, 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 Chris. Oh, they they just they show up in your pub in town, and you're sort of like, well, I've got you know five guys on the payroll. I got a maximum roster size of I don't know. We haven't really decided, but 15 to 20, let's say. Uh, I got a little bit of extra gold. I'm going to hire the bard. You know, he, he looks all right. I've inspected his stats. And then from there, you sort of send him on missions. And what happens to him after you hire him is entirely the result of your gameplay choices. Mm -hmm. um, so characters come and go, you know? Yeah. Is there an end goal in the game? Is it a story-based game? Or is this kind of a, you're going to go down in the dungeon as many times as you can with this set of guys? Like, what what is kind of the focus of the game pushing the player forward? Well, there's a story for sure, and I don't want to say too much about it because we're gonna like our Kickstarter video is gonna reveal a lot of that. Um, but there's a story that sort of threads the experience together. Um, but at its heart, I I personally I don't know how Tyler feels about it, but to me this is a game to be played, not a game to be beaten. Um, to me, the sort of like fun comes out of all the crazy stuff that can happen to these guys and. This is a game that you want to play like New Game Plus, New Game Plus Plus, you know, because 
we're going to have a lot of hidden stuff and extra things sort of come to the fore as you make progress. So, you know, that, that at least is how I see it. I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah. It's like, we have a story that creates sort of the overarching goal and ties, you know, I mean, for example, in, you know, bare minimum, like old net hack type stuff is like, oh, well, you want to ascend or you want to get the seven parts or destroy the rod or whatever. So we have a goal that, you know, creates kind of a, an overarching thing like that with a little more, a little more story fluff to it. But it's definitely not, it's not a Last of Us. It's not a, you know, an Uncharted where you kind of, you know, you go through all these tightly scripted sequences with all these tightly scripted driven story points. It's, it's much more, uh, sandboxy with an overall kind of medical and then like chris said um let's say you complete that then you're, you're probably going to want a new game plus it um but we're we're not relying on like all these strict scripted sequences to drive the things we're building systems um that will like you know like chris said make it interesting to play and we know that the strength of the game in the end is if those systems can drive the sort of cool emergent you know happenings that we're hoping you know that we intended to though because that that way, you, you know, there's no end to the amount of times you can sort of enjoy what's going on. But, um, you know, procedural is all the rage. We definitely have a lot of procedural elements, but uh, we also recognize that you kind of have to do some hand crafting and hand sculpting to make it interesting. Um, you know, otherwise it's the old Daggerfall problem of you can go to any village in Daggerfall and they all look the same. Um, so we've got some ways to address some of that. But uh, closer to the, you know, to Rogue than Uncharted. So it sounds it sounds more like the impetus is like on the experience and like the impetus of the of the, the, whatever's pushing you forward is that you're going to play and you know build your party and sort of you know make decisions and play again and, and keep like experiencing like the the content rather than just like well I beat the last boss I'm done. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in, in fact the last boss might not even always be the same. Um the threat is is nebulous enough and the story setup allows us for a certain amount of flexibility. So our goal is to create something that is fun and tense to play and kind of stresses you out a little bit as a player, but you just want to keep coming back because you never know what's around the next corner. And you know, bosses come and go. <laughs> you know, the same as characters do. So it's we want to create something that's worth replaying. Yeah, and I okay. think the story Um, Maybe one thing that I think is, you know, really cool is uh, like in the whole, um, you know, art direction as well as theme and just general creative direction um, is that what it allows us to do is make sure that the game is still really heavily themed. Like I think a lot of a lot of games that say are relying on a lot of procedural elements um, maybe don't have a super strong theme tying everything through. Um, now games that worked are like FTL and things like that. It's like, cool, you're in space and all these things going on. Um, but our complete, like unilateral, just all in approach to trying to like, for example, the class we're going to announce on Friday, which we can't talk about or Chris would kill me. Um, but continues to demonstrate that like what allows us to do is just be really truthful to the theme. And that's going to create a lot of, a lot of interesting feeling. Um, even though say you're not hitting, story points every you know every mission you're not getting a cutscene that tells you you know pre-scripted sequence or something like that so it's, it it's sounds an like atmospheric it's, game as opposed yes, to a thank narratively you. driven game <laughs> that's what i'm okay. trying and it, it sounds like the what you guys are trying to do is build mechanics that are fun to create interesting experiences rather than here's a scripted sequence totally i mean i would love it if you could like if people would start you know tweeting the most horrible stuff that happened to them the last time they went down i think like shifting people's expectations to like enjoy 
the suffering and, and sort of, you know, talk, talk about that stuff is a, would be a great success for us. Rob and I have been trying to do that with everyone on RPG Fan for Dark Souls for years. <laughs> I do that with my life in general, but people just say <laughs> complaining. Ah, oh, that's, that's no good. <laughs> so I guess, um, so in terms of like party building, I don't know how much you can talk about, but like, are you looking at like a loot system or is it more like a roguelike where, you know, you die and you reset to zero or is like for progression, like are you going to be, you know, finding magical gear and, and, you know, building up, you know, this, 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 you know, repository of crazy cool looking loot or stuff like that and like abilities for each character and that sort of thing. There's a yeah. Tyler question. Go for it. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Uh, there's, yeah, you definitely don't like totally reset. I mean, there's a sense of persistence throughout the game that that goes beyond the loss of any one character, for example. Um, there is character building as well. So that's a really important and a, and a cool part of the game. And I mean, you spend a lot of your time doing that. Uh, but there's also kind of your overall progression through, I guess, achieving the goal of the game. And you know that, I mean, basically a lot of a lot of characters are going to have to do their best to achieve that goal, some of which will never come back. Um, and so, yeah, you do gather loot. Uh, the loot ties into uh, not, not only kind of the characters themselves, although we're doing some kind of different things with loot uh, as far as characters go, but loot also ties into town, which, you know, we haven't talked a lot about town because we haven't revealed a ton, but we can say that some of the loot, you know, collection you're doing ties into what you're doing in town and ties into the overall goal of the game and the story. Um, and yeah, but you find cool stuff to equip on your guys and, and, uh, you know, you, you get surprised with some interesting things. The loot itself, like the rest of the game has some trade-offs. Like you might find, um, I, I, I think we can talk about this as probably not sharing too much, but you might, you know, generally in Darkest Dungeon, you know, there's, there's never a pure upside is, is one of the things, but there's never a pure downside too. So some of the loot, for example, you might say, oh, I find this, this necklace and I put it on and it allows me to get this ability and this ability, but at the extreme cost of this thing. And so if for the better, for the good of the character, you know, for example, getting a better attack, but having to eat twice as much because, you know, he's just bloodthirsty or whatever, um, <laughs> you know, might be, might be a worthwhile trade-off and that's, that pays into the whole, okay, which character would this really pay off and what, you know, who will it not cripple or this guy already, you know, is bad at this. So I might as well just make him worse. You know, that, those interesting decisions. Um, so yeah, loot is important, like our, oh, sorry, but, oh no, I was going to say loot is important, but I mean, yeah, Chris, you, you always do a good job of talking about just how getting away from that other loot approach though, is part of the genesis of the, of the whole idea. Well, yeah, I mean, you're going to upgrade your town. You're going to upgrade each individual character. But, but really, you're managing four characters at a time. And so the total complexity that they represent is about like one MMO character. And so you're going to have to make decisions that cri cripple one of four for the benefit of the party itself. So we're sort of challenging players to think about beyond just, you know, their favorite guy and to the health of, of, the, of the squad. Um, Predominantly, though, we're putting our focus on the sort of emergent personality quirks and things that happen as a result of your experience in the dungeon. That's really what powers up and shapes the characters. It's not so much about getting a bunch of points of experience that you spend. It's really about what happened to you while you were down there. Did you kill 500 spiders? You're now a spider slayer. Good for you. You didn't have to buy it. It didn't cost you gold. It, it's just this guy's really good at killing spiders because you've kept running him through the spider dungeon. Um, 
And that kind of character development we think is a lot more like experience than experience points are, if that makes sense. Um, so that's kind of how we're trying to approach it, where these are just guys who get better if you use them at certain things and suffer the consequences too. I mean, the same guy who's really good at killing spiders might end up, if you are obsessed with facing him off against spiders, um, more susceptible to their venom. Who knows? Um, all of this kind of stuff sort of, sort of happens, and, and it's not a function of what gloves you have on, if that makes sense, or, you know, like how big your shoulder pads are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one thing we're not doing, I guess, which, um, you know, some people, uh, I mean, we love the loot collection. You know, you go in, some of the games are so great at just, you know, you kill somebody and they explode in a shower of different colored loot and you're clicking on the gold as, you know, the gold colored item as fast as you can or the purple. We're, we're not really doing that. Like the, compared to say a, a Diablo or something, um, there's far less, like gamey loot um but you know we haven't we're not losing the fact that loot is cool and you do want to collect things and you're going to be very excited to see certain loot over other loot but you're you're not going to be showered in in like you know rains of of uh vendor trash and sorting it out for like the amazing stuff it's it kind of yeah, goes like you, you stop caring like you kill a guy and there's like three swords fall out of him you're only looking for the orange ones really and that's you and, know that's and, that's fair enough. That's 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 part of the game. That's the way they designed it. But I'd like it if you kill a guy and it's like, oh my god, a sword. Sweet. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I, I, I think that's um, you know I'm a big fan of hack and slash. Like I, I love Path of Exile, I love Diablo three. You know, yeah, in those same, games, same. It, it's you know you love getting the loot in those games. But even like Borderlands two, I love to death. I got like 200 hours on it. But where I am in the game now, it's like stuff you know pops out of the end, like whatever, and I don't even look at it. I just run past it. Yeah, the loot has become meaningless after a while. Yeah, and by extension, it, it trivializes your experience because the game, those that genre of game, which I love too. Um, once you cross that threshold of like I'm pretty well geared, the enjoyment takes a bit of a hit because mm -hmm. it, there is no sense of wonderment. You're not sort of crossing your fingers for the next big loot drop or, or you know whatever the boss is going to drop this time. Um, because it's kind of irrelevant. I mean, there's a very small chance that it'll be better than what you've got, but you've already put your 200 hours in, so your guy's pretty, pretty pimp. And I just, we just don't want to repeat that. Those games have done it better than we ever can, with huge budgets and massive teams and a legacy of experience. It's, it's a, it's a formula and it's perfected. And so we're not trying to compete with those games. We're just trying to offer a different approach to dungeon crawling. Like, what if finding a sword was a huge deal because been down there for 500 years and it's got demon blood all over it that's the sword you found i like it <laughs> uh can you guys talk a little bit about the kickstarter process like where you guys are in development what the kickstarter is exactly looking to fund that sort of thing um yeah i can talk a little bit about it we um kickstarter is a really interesting thing i mean it's such a cool new model um but it's every bit as important, I think, marketing-wise as it is funding-wise. I mean, obviously, the funding is is an incredible thing to put the power in, in basically fans' hands. I mean, um, you know, that remains, I think, the coolest part of Kickstarter is just, you know, you kind of, you know, everybody gets to vote. And if enough people vote that this project should happen, then it gets to happen. Um, but it's also a great way to kind of uh, reward those, you know, to re obviously reward people that are willing to put their faith in it early. So... Um, and it's a good way to promote general awareness of the game. You know, the, the indie market's getting tougher by the day um, in terms of, you know, every week you kind of see the new thing of 150 new games, Greenlit and Steam or whatever it is. And, uh, 
you know, standing out is, is, is a huge deal. And so Kickstarter for us represents kind of a chance um, to help with the funding, which definitely is needed and, and desired, um, as well as, um, you know, to kind of reach fans and just let them know we're out there. You know, funding wise, yeah, we're bootstrapping this company ourselves. Um, we're, we're not independently wealthy. Um, we've been in the industry a while, so we're veterans. That's cool. But, you know, we haven't, uh, uh, we haven't, you know, had the good fortune of, say, having a massive hit game that, that lets us never have to worry about money again. We're doing this out of love of, of doing it as much as, you know, desire to make a living doing it. Um, and so Kickstarter, what we're doing is, you know, we've already got a bunch of development in on the game. You know, we haven't shown a ton because, uh, you know, we, we, uh, I don't know, we, you know, you got to tease a little bit before you show as well. And we're going to be uh, revealing a lot more definitely at the Kickstarter time. And what we're, you know, what we're asking for is going to be an amount that uh, will help ensure that the game can be made. We've already got, you know, some funding through our, ourselves and bootstrapping methods lined up. So we don't need to get every cent from Kickstarter, um, which I think also frees us up to kind of focus on, you know, just making sure to reward reward fans and things. But Kickstarter is definitely a critical a critical thing for us. I don't know, Chris, what do you want to say? Yeah, oh, Kickstarter is crazy important. I, I would love nothing more than to sort of create a, a good, sustainable fan base and basically be like an entertainment farmer and provide a community with a, you know, really fun and enjoyable game and have them help me pay my mortgage. Um, that's really where I'm coming from. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds, it sounds like a win. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's a cool thing. Like being, a, I've backed a bunch of projects on Kickstarter, and um, you know, it's so fun as a backer. Like I've really enjoyed the backing process of just you go through and you hunt through and you find a project, and then you evaluate whether you know is this worth the money? Do you think they're going to be able to finish it? You know, and then more. The most important thing is why back now? And one of the things we're really enjoying with kind of the Kickstarter design is just it's cool to think about providing you know reasons for someone to get behind darkest dungeon now and not just wait till it comes out um and that that's actually pretty fun just because you know it's led to a lot of interesting discussions of what kind of rewards we can provide and and that leads to gameplay ideas or you know stuff like that so it's really fun just kind of as an enthusiast but um you know it's like it's this whole strategy to designing your kickstarter as well right so there's there's a game element there which is kind of fun to play although the stakes are quite high um but you know it's interesting that's that's actually something that i've always thought is interesting about kickstarter i said interesting like four times in that sentence but like you end up with these games that come out or you know they're in development and you know most of the time you know before your game gets merchandise your game has to come out and become popular now it's like mm -hmm. you know you have all these fans that are waiting for a game that's coming out in a year or two there's like posters on their walls they're wearing t-shirts so it's it's yeah. a really cool sort of way to like you know I have a good friend of mine that plays nothing but indie games, and I went to his apartment, and he's got like you know he's got Broken Ages poster on the wall, he's got Banner Saga, you know all his he's got all these T-shirts, and I'm like this guy's walking around every time someone walks in, they go hey what's that, and it's like oh it's this game that's not even out yet that I'm going to tell you about, and you might now be interested in it. Yeah, yeah and the online sort of validation is a uh, is a massive boost for us. Like even releasing our our first trailer and just seeing sort of the feedback from the internet was really, really inspiring. So I'm actually like, I'm terrified, but I'm looking forward to the, the kickstart process just to sort of expose more of the game and, and hopefully get that, that same sort of boost because I mean, it, it means a lot. Like we're just dudes 
making a game and rolling the dice that that people want to play it. So it's fantastic to sort of get that level of like fan interaction and, and attachment. It's really, really encouraging. I can't overstate that. Maybe because I'm a feelings-oriented artist, but... <laughs> totally is, dig that. It is cool, and it's it's such a new way. I mean, I love the model because it... it um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's sort of democratic, but um, it allows you to interact with fans in ways that you couldn't before, you know, and especially when you start combining that with, you know, early access or what other things, but uh, it's kind of a win-win for everybody. Like, the you know, the, the guy who's super excited about the game gets to wear the shirt and gets to be kind of in on an early crowd, you know, and then we can provide them with rewards that maybe you can't get if you're late to the party, that kind of thing. It's always tough to balance those because you want to be, I mean, really anyone who eventually buys the game, we want them to love it and feel like it was a purchase well-made, no matter whether they made it on the first day of the Kickstarter or, you know, three years after the game releases. But, um, you know, so the way we want to do that is definitely reward you for backing early, but not things that are going to say, reduce the enjoyment of the game if you didn't have them. It's just, you know, those are things to consider, but I think it's a win for everybody because yeah, as an enthusiast, it's pretty cool to a lot of games are getting made now thanks to Kickstarter and crowdfunding that publishers would have passed on, you know, and I'm not trying to say publishers are bad, all those sorts of things, but, uh, it, you know, there's a lot of market. Yeah. And people don't know, you know, a publisher has to guess what's going to be a hit, you know, when this game, when the game is made and, and they do their best with market research and things, but what, you know, it's such an amazing thing to be able to put it out there and just say, Hey, if, you know, if we can get 5,000 people to give, 20 bucks each or whatever it is, you know, then that, you know, the people have spoken and uh, it's a neat time to be in development for that reason. That, that's honestly, as, as, as a player, I mean, I've never, you know, developed anything, but I'm always telling Rob and like just telling my friends, you know, this is like the most exciting time I've ever had. I've been playing games since I was like five. And now I feel like a kid again, you know, when I get on Steam or I go on Kickstarter, it's like when I was, yeah, I don't know if you guys remember, but like when you were a kid, you'd go to like, I'd go to rent a game for Sega Genesis and I'd walk in the store and I wouldn't know what anything was. I'd be like, oh, what is this? The cover art is cool. I shall rent this. And then it, yep. you know, yep. that becomes, that, that game is Fantasy Star 4 for me. You know, it's That amazing. game was um, Battletoads for me. Oh, exactly. God. Oh, God. Until uh, I hit well, that goddamn, you know, sorry. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> the theater level, I was like, oh. I knew that. As soon that as you mentioned Battletoads. As soon as he mentioned Battletoads, I knew we were going to get cursing. I knew Bat it was coming. <laughs> Battletoads taught I'm a sorry. generation of young people how to swear and how to hate. Well, yeah. I, th I think to go with Steven's point, and, and you guys have already touched on it, it's so much easier to buy a game when it's $10, $15, $20, or it's on Steam sale or something. It's a really easy, like, oh, hey, I'll try this. It looks cool and interesting. And maybe it's something that you only play once, but, like, if I bought Don't Starve for $7.49 one time when it was on Steam sale, and I play it for a couple of hours and I have a good time, that's great. But when I buy a $60 game, and maybe I only play it for three or four hours, and I start going, huh, that was... That yep. was a big investment, and I was waiting on this game for like three years. And your you know, expectations are are through the roof. Like it's just mm -hmm. it's not what you wanted. And yeah, a sixty seventy bucks is a lot of money. Take it from someone who's not paying themselves right now. That's a lot of yes. money. Yeah. <laughs> well, and well like, yeah. that's like Rob. Rob just you know we just now he and I both just now played Rogue Legacy and. He loved it. I loved it. You made it your game of the year, didn't you, on the site, Rob? Oh, uh, no, your, I didn't make it my game of the year. It was my second. Right. A Link Between Worlds is my game of the year. But, you know, you think about that. Rogue Legacy, this game, you paid you paid like 10-something $10 dollars for it, and all of a sudden it's your favorite experience of the year. You know, so that's that's the kind of excitement that comes out of this is like now you 
you know, you, you pick up this game that, you know, you, you know, may have only heard a little bit about, but you're not afraid to buy it because it's not, you know, 60 bucks. And then all of a sudden it's your favorite game of the year, you know, so that, that's really exciting to me. And that's why I love Kickstarter. I love going on there and looking at the projects I've backed and being like, oh, man, in 2014, I'm going to get like 10 games that I'm all, that I'm crazy excited to try out. Yeah, exactly. I'm pretty sure there's a few games out there that I've paid $60 per hour of entertainment, meaning I bought it and played it once and said, oh, this is horrible and I'm done. And, yeah. you know, and we recognize like those risks are out there with any game, like going back to those days of early renting, I'd rent like two Nintendo games at a time because you knew at least one of them was going to be terrible. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and at least your evening was salvaged if you could, you know, you had a backup. But, um, you know, I think one of the things we're trying to make sure to do with Kickstarter too is, um, you know, there's obviously risks when people back and I know you know when I pledge my money you kind of want to make sure that they at least deliver and so you know we, we feel like not we're trying to offer people like the best combination I all of a sudden I sound like a marketer the business guy here so I'll stop that in a second but um you know the no, game obviously the game is the price of entry and that you know they got to be interested in the game but we do have enough experience we've kind of done some other things including other other you know need development um that you know we're going to deliver like we're we're all in on this personally in terms of um, both Chris and I like have, you know, we've, we've had the good fortune of working in the industry for a while and we're, um, well, we're both marketable is the way to put it. And so there's an opportunity cost for us to do this. And it's absolutely what we love doing. It's what we want to do. And we're, you know, we're pledging ourselves every day basically. So, um, you know, I think we take the whole idea of taking other people's money pretty seriously too. And, um, you know, so I think, I think it's going to be exciting. We're hoping we're going to do it in February or at least the new year. Um, and, uh, yeah, we think about it daily cause it can have such a big effect on, on the game's development. You know, if it goes amazing, then, you know, some of those wish list type features you might want to do now become reality. And, you know, if it, let's face it, if it were to tank, you know, it'd be pretty depressing. We'd have to look at each other and say, okay, what are we doing wrong here with the game? You know, what, you know, is this, is this, the, has the market spoken? So it's, uh, it's exciting, but tense, just like a dungeon run, I guess. <laughs> ah, how appropriate. So I had two more questions. I don't know if you had any more, Rob, but that I really wanted to ask. Uh, one of them, uh, I run the music section on RPG Fan. Uh, I, you know, we review music. We talk about it on the podcast. I, I love in-game music, and I wanted to ask. I don't know how much you guys can comment on it or how much music is made, but I saw uh, Stuart Chatwood. He's the guy that did um, Prince of Persia, like all of them, from yeah. from like the old one all the way up to the most recent ones. Those games have. Great he's like music. a he's a Canadian rock star. He's in the Tea Party, which is a huge <laughs> band in Canada. When I was in university, I'd have their albums. So. You you, you got to be careful when you talk to Americans about the Tea Party. I just shuddered. <laughs> Not trying That's to get right. political, but I was like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> yeah, yes, they're, they're, they're they're an actual rock band, Rob. <laughs> yeah, they're, that, they're okay. a rock band, not a Republican offshoot. <laughs> yeah, <they're>, uh, <laughs> so I know, like, poor sorry, guy. Like, uh, yeah, the name confusion, but yeah, they're the Tea Party, and they're. They're around in the 90s and they're multi-platinum Canadian. Um, but yeah, and then Stuart is the bassist. Yeah, so he's a bona fide rock star, but his his music on Prince of Persia is amazing. I mean, you know, going back to Sands of Time and and uh, through through kind of a, a random connection, actually, of all things, not a game-related connection, uh, we met and uh, we crossed paths and he's been looking to do some more game stuff. He's also recording some new stuff with his band, but I mean, he's, he's a just flat out a damn good composer. And, Say, uh, yeah, he hasn't done a game in a couple of years, I don't think, right? I don't think so. Yeah, I think he's been busy. And, you know, he's done some of that big stuff for Ubisoft. And, um, you know, we we pitched the game to him, basically. I mean, he, he had some interest in getting back involved in games. And so we, uh, Chris and I, you know, 
told him about the project and he actually has quite a love of the dark and and uh you know same stuff that attracted uh, to us the kind of lovecraftian dark gothic that was really the key for him so i think he he realized he wanted to be involved in a project like that just from a theme and topic standpoint and was also looking to do some more game composing so it was just one of these random things that happened and, it, and it's been it's been great i mean we're super excited to work with him i mean he did the music in the first trailer which was a dead-on you know perfect match and um yeah we feel really lucky and just it's gonna be i think it's a great match because i you know you can sometimes have like when you when you're doing a you know a service whatever discipline it is music sound design art you know whatever you're doing I know Chris and I have both been in this situation before. Sometimes you're you're employing your skills on something that you're less than passionate about. Um, and what we've tried to do with Darkest Dungeon is build a team. You know, there's no room for anyone on this team. You know, not just us, the the four core guys, uh, Chris, myself, um, Kelvin, and Kier. Um, but the contractors too. You know, like Stuart, our audio partners. There's no room for anyone who's not passionate about it. And Stuart is passionate about it, so we feel lucky about that. That's that sounds great. I have you guys heard any sort of music for the game yet, or is that process not started? Or well, he did the music for the for our, our launch trailer, and he's going to do it for our Kickstarter trailer as well. So we've been talking, and creatively, we're we're pretty aligned, and it's it's really exciting. His stuff is pretty awesome. Very cool. I uh, I. I... I personally look forward to hearing more about that, not just the game, but uh, I, from the musical standpoint, I did like the trailer music, and I love his work on all of the Prince of Persia games I've played, which I, I think he did literally all of them. But uh, You should back us on Kickstarter and get the soundtrack. What do you say? Uh, uh, you probably, go, probably going to. <laughs> Can you tell that Steven totally runs the music podcast on this site? Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I know. Who knows? Like he, he's a pretty busy guy, but you know, maybe eventually we can get him involved to comment on some stuff. But he, uh, one of the things that attracted us to him as well is just his use. His he's interested in using a lot of different instruments, which really fits, you know, fits what we're trying to do. So he's got this kind of blend of everything from rock on down to pure traditional, like you know, industrial or something. It's really yeah. awesome. Rock industrial backed. <laughs> And uh, they call they call the Tea Party band they call them Moroccan Roll, which I think is awesome, <laughs> uh, you know, because they've used some other kind of you know Eastern inspired uh, and Arabian inspired sort of instruments, and so you know Moroccan Roll also sort of fits maybe what's going to end up in the game. We'll see. Very cool. So to totally change gears, I guess this is I, I thought of this question at the very beginning, but I wanted to wait till the end because it seems sort of encompassing. But so, safe <laughs> in in the perfect situation, you guys totally create, you know, you, you realize your creative vision 100%. You, you know, it's in the perfect world. It is perfect. It's exactly what you wanted. What kind of metagame do you want? Like, what do you want players to be talking about when they're strategizing? Like, if, if me and Rob are playing this game or talking about it on the podcast in a year and a half after we've played it for 50 hours, you know, what do you, what do you want players to be talking about? Like, you know, what kinds of strategies and sort of things like that? I think, I think for me, I would love to hear people... Uh, really you know theory crafting and experimenting like d did you try bringing three crusaders and a merchant because he can carry extra stuff and no i wiped doing that and swapping and, and building a sort of collaborative community around um around kind of playing and, and, and beating the game because the game is going to be hard enough to take on a bunch of people mm -hmm. um so it would be really cool to sort of you know see websites or, or forums or whatever that that kind of swap party pairings or different um, character skill trees and which ones are compatible and 
and just hear about people's experiences that in the dungeon and, and that it's, you know, something that, that they enjoy coming back to. Yeah, I think I would love it if uh, one of the things I loved about playing, say, Fallout 3 and Skyrim is is just hearing other people's experiences and what they did uh, made the game like, you know, half my enjoyment was what I did and half was what other people were doing. So, I mean, if, you know, if we can get some awesome, uh, you know, big Let's players doing, you know, Let's plays having just ridiculous videos of things gone bad or unexpectedly heroic moments at the end, saving all, you know, the, I would like to be able to watch those videos and, and laugh or, you know, sort of wince along alongside them and, uh, you know, almost getting to enjoy just all these things that could happen. Yeah. And since we're talking about the, uh, this is the absolute perfect world, right? Like we're in the trust tree. This is pure fantasy. Um, oh yeah. Okay. Um, I would, I would love it if I could read an interview in 15 years with somebody doing kind of an interesting game or something. And they're like, well, you know, I played darkest dungeon. I really like, I would love it if our take on the dungeon crawler stuck a little, you know, even in some small way, somehow, if we can enrich or broaden people's perceptions of what, this sort of classic and well-loved genre can be, that would be, to me, the ultimate success. I mean, that's a pretty lofty aim. So, but we said it was perfect and all that, so that's where I'm coming from. Yeah, you want your game to matter. You want yeah. your game to have made a difference. And, and to inspire, like, you know, young younger artists or game developers, you know, to just go out and try it. I mean, Tyler said it a couple times. We're both, uh, to the exclusion of other well-paying opportunities, we're, we're all in on this because it's a, it's a dream of ours, and it would be great to encourage people to do the same. Well, let's think about it optimistically. It doesn't have to be perfect for it to do that. So I, I don't yeah. think that's, you know, maybe a pipe dream, but I don't think that's an unreasonable, you know, expectation. You know, you, you hope, but it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be, you know, Dark Souls isn't perfect, but we never shut up about it on the show. So, yeah, exactly. It's just got to be really good at the right time, you know, and, and that's what I'm hoping we can land with, uh, with darkest dungeon but uh you know obviously we're gonna it's a long road and we're gonna need some help to get there all right um we, i was not expecting the interview to go an hour but i i this was a lot of fun guys um you guys are shooting for 2014 yes yes can, can i, I hold you to that to <laughs> <laughs> no i was um, waiting for Tyler to answer yeah we're, we're shooting for 2014 yeah, right now we're saying Q4 2014, you know, which, of course, gives us a little bit of a three month. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, we're going to do some more figuring before the Kickstarter and, and uh, you know, take into kind of account all those things. And um, I wouldn't swear my life on it, but we also I can tell you it's not going to be a 2016 game. <laughs> okay. It's, you know, I mean, a lot of games for various reasons, you know, they 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 stretch on for a long, long time. And that's not something. Um, you know, we're, we're going to do with this, but you know, if we, if we don't feel the game is as good as we want it to be, you know, we'll, we'll entertain, uh, looking at, uh, whatever it takes to make sure it gets there. But, uh, yeah, next winter, I mean, I think is, is what we're aiming for. Okay. Uh, I'll give you guys the parting words for the listeners of the podcast. Uh, give them a little, little something to think about. Uh, okay, I'll go well, first. No I'll go first because I like. <laughs> Please I like, back our game. <laughs> I like Chris to end because he's he's always good at that. Um, good. No, you know, no, that's not a uh, backhanded compliment. We. <laughs> no, I mean, I think you know, we really appreciate if people listen this far. That's awesome. Uh, if you're interested in the game, I mean, you really can have a big effect in it uh, in its development. Not not just through the Kickstarter, which of course that just sounds like a plug. But you know, get involved. Let us know. Send us email to the 
um, feedback at redhookgames.com, you know, post on the stuff. Like we, we read all that stuff. We see it all. Check us out on Twitter. It's not just a way to, for you to find out about the game. It's for you to let us know what you really love. And there's still a chance for us to do, you know, to skew development towards that. Like if we find everybody loves feature B and feature A doesn't seem to excite anybody, you know, we, we're flexible, man. We don't have any bosses other than ourselves. So um, we love it for you to get involved. And honestly, it helps keep us going every day. Yeah, I can't put a better button on it than that. Uh, talk to us, let us know what you think. Um, and, and we appreciate the opportunity for exposure and, uh, yeah, all of the stuff that Tyler said. All right, guys, uh, really excited to hear more about the game. I think we're going to follow the Kickstarter closely. Uh, you guys will have to continue to listen to random encounter. Cause I'm sure we'll have opinions when we start seeing gameplay videos and stuff. Uh, Steven will probably say that he loves it no matter what you guys show him. And I'll, I'll probably be the more, the more skeptic, but I think we're all really looking forward to it. Well, thanks very much. And yeah, Friday we're going to announce a new class. So check that out. We'll have some wallpaper oh, for you. you and... uh, oh, come on. You get, you get, come on. You got to tell us what it is. <laughs> no, nah, I'm playing. <laughs> <laughs> it's Friday the 13th. I don't want to spoil it. If it was just a regular Friday, I'd tell you. Well, come on. It's my birthday on Friday, dude. Come on. <laughs> well, I'll tweet you special. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what my students tell me. Okay, so uh, thanks thanks so much, Chris, Tyler, Stephen. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. And uh, thanks to everybody for listening, and we'll see you all later.